resuscitation, then they try to get him to the hospital. University of Cincinnati Medical Center, where he probably is, is excellent trauma center. And the good news, if there is good news, is that they're reporting him in critical condition. Most of the time, in a situation like this, a person doesn't make it to the hospital. If he's a, he would automatically be in critical condition in a situation like this. But this implies, and again, I don't have the actual complete knowledge of this, that he made it past the CPR stage and that his heart rhythm is back. So then the, if that's true, the question then comes, what is the downtime? What is the issue with oxygen to the brain? Did the brain go through a period without enough oxygen? That's what you worry about the most. If, in fact, he made it to that stage where he's in critical condition, then we hope and pray that he wakes up. Certainly, everybody's uh, thoughts and prayers are with him. Of Should course, we're talking about praise. Damar Hamlin, the, the safety for the Buffalo Bills, uh, one of the most exceptional safeties, uh, a fine physical specimen by every way we can tell. I mean, if you play safety in the NFL, you are a very fit individual. It's scary that something like this is that dramatic can happen. I guess the good news that I read from that, Dr. Siegel, is that uh, medical care was right there. It was literally yards away. They were able to get there as quickly as possible. He saw the ambulance come on the field and get him to the hospital as quickly as possible. Let's uh, bring in now Fox News host uh, Will Kane. Uh, Will, I'd like to get your perspective, your thoughts on this. You follow sports very closely and and understand, I think, the, the gravity of what's happening in that state stadium for the family of DeMar Hamlin and uh, the greater NFL family as a whole. Yeah, Jason, I can. So I was, uh, you know, just, just watching watching this uh, here in, in Australia, just sitting down for, for lunch and... Uh, I was doing some exercises. I stepped away from the game and noticed that it had paused and tried to catch up on, you know, what what the heck is happening. So I've been watching the NFL since 1977 when I came to America and I've never seen this, right? I've never seen this in any major American sport. Uh, I think it's happened in Australia it's happened. There was a soccer game where the Danish national player, I think Daniel Eriksson, collapsed, had had a heart attack, uh, survived. But this guy is in critical condition and he's being intubated, which you really don't want to be intubated. All right, the overwhelming majority of people who who are intubated, you know, don't survive. So this is a historic occasion, right? Nothing like this has happened before in major American sports. Also, it comes on the heels of a steady drumbeat of devastating medical information about the dangers of playing football. So increasingly, middle-class parents do not want their kids playing football. So this this will never be forgotten. Right? This, this may, may very well mark a, a sea change in the fortunes of the National Football League. So despite the concussion crisis, the CTE crisis, uh, the, the overwhelming evidence about how cognitively damaging playing football is, uh, football is as popular as ever. It's it survived all its crises, but this could very well be the death knell uh, of the National Football League because the human body is just not built to play tackle football. And 
here, here we see this young man collapsing. Of course, you you have have the proponents of the the died suddenly meme, the anti-vaxxers uh, seizing on this because ninety five percent plus of the NFL players are vaccinated. Uh, I don't buy into the anti-vax perspective, but uh, this is absolutely shocking. And so one of the one of the themes I saw cruising along Twitter is that the NFL needs to make grief counseling immediately available. And grief counseling is just a total scam, right? Grief, grief counseling uh, doesn't do any good. It, it does harm, right? To, to get people to, to talk in the immediate aftermath of such a horrific event, it, it only does harm. Let me send some invites out to people, see if we can get a discussion going. On a personal level, for so many people listening, this is what we experienced together, but we haven't experienced this particular type of situation. We just haven't. Jim brought up uh, Reggie right. Brown. I remember that, you know, and that's what you come to expect in football, like a violent, traumatic injury. This one is just so shocking in that it's out of the norm. And I think, like, like you said, Jason, we all deal with things on our own individual level, but this is one we, we, we experience together. This is sports is the best of us because it brings us together. And then when it gives us the worst as well, we come through this or deal with this together. Okay. Elliot yeah. Blatt, you know, it's the uh, new year. There's a lot of optimism on, in the bro? air. It's uh... oh, hi Luke. Hey. Sorry. Long time. No, no talk. Yeah. Good to hear. Right I, I've been, uh, I've, uh, I've had my own health problems, Luke. I got, I got way, I got completely devastated by a flu. I got crushed these past two weeks. Oh, no. So I'm only finally, like, returning to somewhat normalcy. I don't know if it was the cocoa or not, but that was, uh, it was unpleasant. And how is this flu this different? Flu. How is this flu different from all other flus? Um, <laughs> see, sorry about the cough. That's why I didn't want to call it because I was coughing even worse before. But, well, it came on so slowly. It was like this creeping, eh, just, you know, it didn't really, like, reach a crisis. It was just a slow day by day, worse and worse and worse. And then it sort of finally, you know, came to a head about, I don't know, two weeks ago where I could actually not work. So, I, you know, I had to miss a couple of days of work, which... Almost never happens. And then it was like, you know, slowly, 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 I would get better. But um, it was a drag. It's been a drag. So when did you start getting better? How long ago? (laughs) I would say um, maybe about five days ago, six days ago, a week ago. Uh, it was like normally a flu sort of comes on, you're sort of in denial, you know, maybe I'm not getting sick, maybe I'm sick. And then you're like, finally, okay, yeah, I'm getting sick. And then it's like, you know, you're, you have like a couple of really bad days and then you get, you get over it pretty quickly, you know? Um, and this wasn't like that. It was like, I would just slowly get better, slowly feel better, you know? And, you know, I took all manner of uh, cold remedies and things and elderberry and all this stuff. <coughs> it was terrible. <coughs> it 
I see. I, I was reluctant to call in because I hate that. I hate hearing myself cough on 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 a live stream. Look, so um, so anyway, enough about me. I, I didn't did want you, to call did you in. have someone? I was, I was just. Uh, hmm? Did you have someone there to nurse Continue? you? Did you have someone there to nurse you through this illness? No, Luke. I was all I'm alone. Sorry. Isn't that sad? Is that sad? Didn't have a. Didn't have. I wasn't surrounded by a community, a religious community. All that. Bring me bowls of soup. You went surrounded by love. I wasn't. I was. I was surrounded by indifference and exclusion. (laughs) (laughs) But did you feel the virtual love (laughs) pulsing through this live stream community? Yeah, I, I, I did. I did. That was all I needed, Luke. (sighs) So anyway, do you think we're ever going to get over how we feel tonight? Well, so I um the only the only thing I know about this is what I've heard from you. So he was a safety, so he made a tackle. Yeah, yeah, a guy who was bigger than him. Yeah, a guy who was like fifty pounds bigger than him, like hit him in the chest, and there was like helmet to helmet initiated by the ball carrier. And so the safety made the tackle, uh, went down, and then he jumped up and took a step or two, and then just passed out cold. And they were administering CPR to him on the field, which I had never seen before in an American major sport. Did the helmet make contact with his chest near his heart, or did it? Did it? Uh, no, it like... the, the opposing player's shoulder made contact with the chest, and then the helmet went helmet to helmet. Okay. Huh. Well, yeah, I'm kind of surprised that this has never happened, actually. I mean, it's such a violent game. Uh, not to wimp out on you here, but I can't believe this is the first time. I mean, we've seen. Remember uh, Seha? What was his name? Seha? Uh, Junior Seha? Yeah, yeah, Se- yeah, 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 yeah. The great yeah. linebacker committed so suicide. I, I remember watching a game. He used to play for the Patriots. He played a lot of teams. He played for the Patriots. Yeah. And he took a hit, and his he like took a hit, and you know, like his arm was basically broken in half. Yeah. His his forearm, you know, he took a, you know, that's a major injury, you know, and I can't imagine how painful that would have been. And uh, yeah, he did ultimately uh, take his life. You know, living with pain is depressing. You know, it has, it's not just physical. It has real consequences for your mood. Your, your whole uh, outlook becomes really bleak if you have this sort of ongoing pain. So it doesn't surprise me uh, that NFL people... Uh, suffer from that kind of depression. And I knew an NFL guy, a retired NFL guy, used to hang out in my gym. And this guy could barely move by himself. Mm. Like he, 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 you know, he was in his fifties by this time. And uh, he was in pain from head to toe. Those injuries don't, they don't just disappear. They linger forever. Yeah. I mean, have you ever headed a soccer ball? Um, maybe in grade school. Yeah, I mean, I it hurts. Like your brain rattles around when you you had had yeah. a soccer ball, and so just I mean, uh, you, you are you are objectively stupider after heading a soccer ball. You have you get lower IQ results after heading a soccer ball because of the head trauma. So if you get that just from heading a soccer ball, you know, imagine what what uh, a full on NFL tackle. You know, does to your 
head head neck body relationship. Yeah, no, I, I hear you. <sighs> I don't know. I mean, so what kind of impact do you think? I mean, people, do you think? I don't get the sense people are ready to give up their NFL football though, Luke. No, but you do see that more and more middle class parents discourage their children from from playing football, tackle football. Mm. I mean that yeah, that's why you have so many American kids playing soccer. Middle like soccer in America is a middle class sport. Everywhere else, it's a working class sport. But in America, it's mm. like the the polite sport. So I'd have to think that after this, even fewer uh, middle class families are going to want their, their children playing tackle football. It, it football tackle football is overwhelmingly the sport of the underclass. Yeah, I can see that. Um, well, um, you know, remember that book? Uh, there's a book called Stuff White People Like. Yes. Like this is early 2000s, I believe. Yes. And one of the entries in that book was pretending to care about soccer. Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, what about the jump? Maybe there's take the full jump, you know, the full LBGTQ jump. And go directly from NFL to cricket. Just yeah. make the full transition. I think that's where we're going. Do you, do you know how many people around the world watch the Super Bowl outside of the United States? I imagine it's a lot. Because I met a guy from New Zealand that said he took the day off work to watch the Super Bowl. The U.S. Super Bowl. Yeah, about, so I imagine five, it's a lot. about five million people. So Five mil- million yeah. worldwide? Yeah. Oh, so I, mean, I thought it would be more. Yeah. I so about a billion and a half to two billion people will watch the World Cup live, but uh, yeah. five million people around the world will watch the NFL Super Bowl live. Yeah. Well, it's because it is pretty affluent. I mean, think about all that equipment. <coughs> it's an it's an affluent sport. <laughs> affluent yeah. sport played if by my coffee the gets underclass. To be too much. I'm absolutely yeah, ruthless, Elliot. I'm absolutely ruthless. You, yeah. you don't have to be concerned mm. about me looking out for the for my own and the show's best interests. All right, all right. Um, <clears throat> so, well, how have you been spending your time, your illness time? Um, I'm doing my regular duties, but but taking little lots of naps and kind of zone out sessions with with live streams, you know, just dragging ass. And it's been so wet. Dude, we get, we've got so much rain here in California. Like, <clears throat> it's the exact time when you want some sunshine, and it's not. You know, God is withholding this from me. This is like a trial I have to endure. This is my exile in the desert. But the desert, of course, in this case, being a deluge. <laughs> and uh, how does rain make you feel, Elliot? Do you, do you reach deprivation, <clears throat> depression? Well, if it's the first rain after a long dry spell, it feels great. But when the days start to mount up, it's terrible. I, I can't. I, it's it's a try. Each hour is difficult. I'm depressed. I'm cold. I'm morbid and gloomy. I, I can't get motivated. Um, yeah, I hate it. I hate it. So if you were a parent, if you had a, a boy child, would you encourage, discourage, or be neutral with regard to him playing tackle football? 
I say, get on that math team, boy. <laughs> you know what I mean, bro? Learn to code, my dude. <laughs> my little dude, my little sprout, my little bundle of joy. <laughs> Did you ever see Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf? I'm not sure. Oh, really? Oh, you're in for a treat, Luke. You are in for a treat. Great, great film. It's uh, Elizabeth Taylor, Richard Burton. Oh, are they Black an alcohol? Are they an alcohol, alcohol yes. couple that's splitting up. Let's play get. Yeah, they they play get the guests. It's a it's a masterpiece. Luke. It's one of the one of the best things of all time. And, and was there a point you wanted to make about the movie? Well, um, uh, so sort of like the. There's a lot of uh, bantering that goes on between these two couples, an older mm-hmm. couple and a younger couple. But the deep subtext is that the older couple never had a child. And this gnaws at, it gnaws at the the older woman for never, she really feels that. Yeah. And this sort of animates the tension between the two of them and the sort of neurotic behaviors that they get engaged in. So, um yeah, that's what made me think of it. And so there's a line where, so they fabricated the existence of a son, a son that they never really had. Mm-hmm. And they sort of lay, they have this multi-layered biography of this kid that this kid in quotes that never existed. And so they challenge each other, you know? And so Richard Burton says to Elizabeth Taylor, well, why don't you tell us, tell them about our little sprout, our little bundle of joy, Right. <laughs> Right. And this slowly puts her over the edge. It's really, it's just like, I'm not really into plays, but this is something else. This is just something else. So if uh, this Buffalo Bills safety dies, what do you think that does to the Bills' chances to win the Super Bowl this year? (coughs) I don't know, Luke. I haven't paid a, I haven't paid any attention. I tried to, you know, last year we had our little football chit chat. Yes. I could I couldn't I couldn't I couldn't get motivated this year. Couldn't care less. I honestly there's too much there's too much Luke. There's too much available. There's too much distraction in the world. I can't just partake in everything. You need to things just don't make the cut, Luke. You just have to be you have to be um you have to be firm. You have to be decisive and say no, no in NFL. I don't have time for you. So I have I didn't do any NFL this year. And uh, how are you feeling about Mister Mister being on his last legs? I I feel terrible about it, and I um, uh, and I was you know you know how he had his little spat with Ralph. Yes. And then Ralph sort of tweeted some really nasty things about him, and it just just it was so you know he, he had Ralph had a chance to do something. Just marginally classy. He could have showed a little restraint, you know, and he couldn't do it. It was just too much for him. He was just sort of dancing on his grave and really disgusting. So, uh, yeah, but Medicare, uh, you know, I think it's a loss. I, I, you know, I don't know what the hope is. doesn't sound like hope is that strong, but, you know, if he could recover or even partially recover, but... It doesn't sound like it. Uh, so, so how it's much? A huge loss. How much Medica content have you consumed? 
Fair amount, I'd say. I mean, he was a staple of the IBS scene, you know. What's the were... IBS? Is that irritable bowel syndrome? <coughs> no, internet blood sports, my dude. Oh, yes, you know sorry. That. That's right. <laughs> Come on. Get with the program. Get with the lingo, dude. You got you to gotta speak Gen Z, man. Yeah, yeah. But now I, I loved Medica because I thought he was had incredible amount of self-awareness, common sense, and was able to look at things with extreme objectivity. <laughs> yeah. And not to mention humor. I mean, he's like, he's coined so many of the phrases that we use. You know, he's, he's coined real words. You know, he's, um, or expressions. A lot of, you know, he's he sort of, you know, He's contributed a lot to sort of the, the glossary of her section of the internet, you know? <laughs> if, uh, if one was looking for a role model of how to conduct oneself online, I think he'd be an excellent one. Yeah. <clears throat> However, um, he was always anonymous. And I always found that a little bit inter irritating. Um, you know, I understand the reasons, <laughs> but I, I can't really like. It, it's hard to me for me to make a full connection with somebody that I can't quite see their face, you know, or I've never seen their face. He's—I don't think he's ever shown his face on the internet, you know, in all the time he's been on. Well, uh, he's been doxxed. I mean, if you just Google him, you get his real name. I know his name, but do you know? Have you ever seen his face? I don't know what he looks like. I haven't looked. Yeah. Yeah, I'm splitting hairs, but I think there's something communicated in that. And um, let's put it this way I'd feel more strongly had I seen his face, I would have had a stronger connection and I would have felt I would have felt the loss more, more keenly. So you don't you don't buy it? Yeah, no, I absolutely buy it. But what do you think about the, the larger point of? of Medica as a, as a role model for how to conduct oneself during internet blood sports and other online activities. I think, I think he is a role model. I think yeah. he, you know, I think he, he sort of would walk this line between humor and good humor and, you know, sanity. So his, his, his humor originated from a place of sort of grounded sanity. You know, it was, it was the, the root of his persona was this grounded persona. And therefore, because he was so grounded, he could contrast and pick up on the, the fraudulence that he would have, uh, uh, yeah, exposed on the internet. I think, you know, what is it? You can't fool an honest man or something like that. Yeah. Is there an expression like that? There I, I think, that I think the, maybe you, you kind of, no, because I read it today somewhere or recently. Um, I heard it. But I think that's true. I think if you're an honest person, I think bullshit becomes ultimately more clear to you very quickly. But if you're a bullshitter, you're sort of, um, you don't have like a clean template to to compare your your experience to. So you'll be deceived. I think you've said things to this effect. Yeah. Like yeah. we're all, was it? complicit in our own deception or something yeah we yeah we usually lying is usually a consensual act so 
for example, yes. when I when I moved to Los Angeles and I went out for all these acting modeling gigs, you know, even went for some where I was required to pay for the audition. So a large part of my brain says this is a scam. But I I kind of wanted to buy into it. I, I wanted to buy the hope that, you know, I could have a legitimate career in Hollywood. Mm. Like I remember one one audition at to pay seventy five dollars, but then they they listed my name in the credits for a forthcoming movie. I had a I had a starring role in a forthcoming movie that was never made, but you know, at least the, the credits were repeatedly published in Daily Variety. Well, that's cool. <laughs> <laughs> but like you know, you know when you you meet somebody and just something doesn't sit right. They yeah. said something and then the way they said it, yeah. you just have an uneasy feeling, you know, it's bullshit and you, you have no proof, but you've picked up on it. You know, there's yeah. like this subtle undercurrent that you sort of pick up on and something tells you not to, not to bite, you know? And, um, I've, I've got a hilarious kind of, story about this. So uh, someone I know well, a 20 year old female who's a virgin. Okay. She's, mm-hmm. she has to find a job, has to get a job. And so she's looking through the classified ads. This is approximately 40 years ago, looking through the classified ads and finds, finds help wanted ads for a massage therapist. So mm. her, like her friends tell her, look, this is prostitution. You know, don't do it. But she ignores what her friends tell her. She goes to the job interview and she thinks, oh, th- this sounds right. She was just a little bit confused by the the boss telling her that she'd have to perform these these massages without her shirt. And, and she thought it had something to do with, you know, the, the physical exertion or whatever. But uh, her friends contacted her family and her family intervened and swooped in with money and said, uh, you know, this is prostitution. So she wouldn't, she wouldn't listen to her friends, but after like family swooped in and, you know, convinced her, you know, you can't, you can't do this, that she finally, finally got the, got the hint. That's amazing. Do you think women are just that gullible though? Is this like across the board or is this this particular person? I think some women and some men are incredibly naive, but it's a self-centered gullibility. The, the, mm. the thinking you know better you, you don't listen to other people and that you only see what you want to see so i i actually went on one of these job interviews when i was in los angeles and i needed money and it was like uh, uh, <coughs> and, and right. you know i went along and they said we want to emphasize that this is all you know by the book you know this is all you know a legitimate operation here and i did get the job so i i wasn't wasn't tempted but uh oh yeah it was for escorting and i thought that i could just like escort ladies around i didn't you know i didn't realize that i might be involved in illicit and illegal activity (laughs) he's just just taking them around pointing out various landmarks things yeah i mean i thought i'd have to have sex with them but they were women i mean i figured but but it turns out it wasn't a big market for male escorts for women. Pretty shocking. So yeah, well, this isn't exactly analogous, but I remember when I, when I first moved 
San Francisco. I, I was uh, 18. Now, you may not believe this, but I didn't think homosexuality was real. I, I thought people were... I thought people were joking when yeah. they were making jokes about it. Yeah. You know? And I, I honestly didn't... Uh, I honestly didn't think it really happened in the real world, you know, or if it did, it was so ultimately ultra rare, you know, and then someone showed me a film. I don't remember the name of the film, but it was a very red pilling experience, my dude. <laughs> <laughs> like just imagine Babs, he walks through Central Park in, in New York and, that sees men copulating on a regular basis. Oh, really? Oh. Yeah. Is that? Oh, oh, all right. I got a story for you. Do you know William Friedkin? Yes, the movie director. Movie director. So he directed The Exorcist. Yes. But but he also directed a film called Cruising. Yes. Have you heard of it? Yes. Right. So Cruising <clears throat> was about. Um, it was about the, <clears throat> well, the gay cruising scene uh, yeah. in in Central Park. And there was a, uh, uh, a murderer, you know, stalking the cruising scene and yeah. choosing gay men as his victims, right? <clears throat> and the film didn't really do well. And then, so I was working at this, when I was working at this movie theater in San Francisco, uh, we uh, sort of, they were trying to bring that film back to see if it could, uh, you know, could have like a little revival run, you know, it was sort of an edgy thing to do to try because maybe things, times had changed, you know, and so word got out and the theater was picketed and uh, there was just giant hubbub, which, you know, the programmer of the theater knew would happen. He knew this would be great publicity. And so, <laughs> um, uh, this whole hub, this whole media event, the circus developed around the showing of this film for a week. And um, uh, uh, so I wasn't there, but so the, the director, William Friedkin, came to San Francisco to interview, you know, to, to, do, to do some press and then go to lunch with the owners of the theater. And he <laughs> apparently is this guy that has no filter, like has no, he just, he <laughs> speaks in this, right? No, no, and no, no, no uh, clue whatsoever about lowering his voice or, or saying, not saying something and saying other things. You know, he just says what comes to his mind. And so basically he's screaming, he's talking about fisting in the middle of this restaurant. <laughs> screaming this out and like he became the center of attention you know because he was just you know telling these stories of uh of of uh the the cruising scene in new york and anyway so but the just and the story so even some of so we had so we had gay employees of the theater were sabotaging the very theater they were sabotaging the theater they were uh, you know putting leaflets and uh, defacing the outer, the exterior of the building and so forth. Uh, you know, it, it later came to light, you know, just, just, it was, so it was just, it was just really disgusting display. So anyway, 
Do you think Not the, the gays were, were picketing the movie? Do you think they picketed the movie because it was bigoted and unfair? Or do you think they were picketing the movie precisely because it was so painfully accurate? Uh, well, both. I mean, what? okay. So they claimed it to be, they, they were picketing because it was too close to home. Yes. So yeah. it was, um, and that's sort of the truth I think about. And I've later come to learn, you know, that underneath these protests, there's a, there's a sort of rich vein of truth that's trying to be suppressed. And this is very much the case. And, and what role does fisting play in your repertoire? um well it depends on the time of year yeah it's kind of seasonal yeah you know more of a summer thing for me yeah yeah. i'm still waiting for richard spencer hasn't reacted yet oh well well we shall tune in he's gonna have a hot contrary anyway has there any any updates on this uh nfl player well he's been intubated so mm-hmm. people who've been intubated you know, <coughs> usually die. At least uh, most COVID patients who were intubated a- ended up dying. He, he was still alive when he, when he got to the medical center. It's a level one trauma center two miles from the stadium. So apparently it's you know very highly qualified, you know, latest technology medical center. So yeah. if he can possibly be saved, you know, it's going to happen at this, this medical center. So how many uh, Jewish doctors are going to work on it, do you think? Oh. <coughs> hmm? I don't know, but probably I remember... Probably 60, 60%, I would say. Yeah, I remember I remember reading a book on Ronald Reagan's assassination. And, I mean, he almost died. And so there yeah. are plenty of times you, you really want the very best of, of medical care. And so if... I would hope that they're not affirmative action doctors. Yeah. I would hope that they spend most of their education on being a doctor and not on equity and inclusion issues. Yeah. What if, what if he gets to the operating table and they pull him out, you know, they, 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 they take his Jersey off and he's got a Kanye necklace on and the surgeon is jewish what's going to happen you think he's just going to look surgeon's just going to not care he's just going to be a professional about it and not as i understand it not not worry about the yadoff you know he's like yadoff no yadoff he's got a job to do and he's going to do it yeah i mean as i understand it surgeons and doctors are overwhelmingly far more professional (laughs) than their patients you know patients routinely abuse doctors if they're not of their preferred race. So I'm in Tenham Sands, Australia, which is about uh, 350 miles from the nearest big city. And so pretty much all the doctors out here are Indian. So regular white Mm. Australians don't like to work as as doctors in remote rural areas. Uh, So we have to import Pakistanis and Indians to be our doctors in Outback Australia. Hmm. So, um, how do you feel about that? Well, I, I'm I'm okay with it. I'm I'm okay with uh, a, a moderate to small amount of very high skilled immigration. Hmm. So, if, if you if your society badly needs a particular skill, 
right? Like doctor, you know, I, I would want access to a doctor if I had a health emergency, like someone mm. close to me, you know, was taken by ambulance to the hospital a couple of days ago. Uh, so yeah, I, I, I love expertise. I mean, I love excellence. <coughs> yeah, I love high IQ types. And so I would welcome very high IQ, very excellent uh, people with like important skills, like, like doctor, like I'm, I'm, I'm good with that. Yeah. But, uh, Hmm. I mean, it's weird, you know, I, 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 I guess I assume that was only an American trend, but now that is that the entire Anglosphere UK too? Uh, yeah, I, 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 I believe so. Uh, mm. Because you can require immigrants to do things that you can't require regular people. So if they're going to come over here and work in medicine, they have to work in remote areas. So, I mean, this is also true for, you know, regular Anglos who go through medical school. They have to go work in remote areas for two or three, four or five years. Same with teachers. If they yeah. get the government pays for their education, they have to go work in the outback for a couple of years. Yeah, that's true. I think everyone wants the sort of the, the 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 choice coastal jobs. No one wants to go to Omaha, so all the immigrants probably go to Omaha and Topeka. Um, so it's probably a very similar dynamic. I wonder if they're giving this uh, Buffalo Bills player if they're giving him narrative therapy. And narrative therapy is <laughs> very effective, and, and aromatherapy. That that combination. Yeah, it could be it could be soothing. Sort of get over small dramas. You know, this is your life. Now, I I simply can't believe this is the first time anybody's died on the field. And he hasn't even died yet, if at all. He may never. He may not. Um, is this what they're saying? Is that truly what's? Well, he's intubated. He's still apparently. Oh, one thing I noticed: we're always waiting for official sources. So, mm. you know, God forbid we get, we get, wouldn't that be awful if we got the news about what's really going on from unofficial sources? I, I'd really feel deprived. Yeah. So you mean, um, you're waiting, you, you're checking Twitter. You wanna... Yeah. I mean, we can't, we can't, we can't really pay too much attention to unofficial <coughs> sources because they're frequently peddling disinformation. And that would be a, that would be a dangerous for our democracy. Yeah, <laughs> you know. Uh, I don't know. I don't know. All right, look, I'm I'm feeling I'm flagging a little bit. I'm not okay. I don't think I'm bringing you, it tonight, bro. Yeah, your your heart is in it, even if your body can't really bring it at the, the yeah. normal level of uh, All right, I, live broadcasting excellence that you typically deliver. <laughs> yeah. I'm gonna draw, but I'll uh, I'll I'll, tune, I'll be tuned in. Okay, thoughts and press. Uh, all right, all right. Okay. Shalom. Bye bye. Shalom. Blessings. Okay, let's go to Fox you News. Right. Thump them because that thump creates an electromechanical wavefront that can affect heart rhythm activity. And here, if this is correct, what happened? What 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 could have happened is that that impact, as underpowered as you point out it was, was delivered at just exactly the right place and time, time meaning in the cardiac cycle, where the heart's a little bit vulnerable. So when that electromechanical wavefront impacts the heart, 
the rhythm can become chaotic and disordered. And Doc, the, the doctor, one of, one of the things that, yes, sir. Doctor, I, I want to thank you for your analysis here. Um, we, we have to continue on. Fox News is going to continue its coverage here. But, of course, we're talking about DeMar Hamlin, who was uh, playing for the Buffalo Bills against the Cincinnati Bengals. It was a Monday night game. Um, he collapsed. He, he the CPR was administered. And the last we heard from the NFL, he was in critical condition in a local Cincinnati hospital. You see the prayers there that are being offered on the field, the medical uh, attention that was going on. Stay with us here at Fox News. We're going to continue to cover this. I'm Jason Chaffetz. Stay with us. More to come. Good evening. This is the Fox News Alert. I'm Lawrence Jones in New York. Tragedy plays out on national television during Monday night football game between the Buffalo Bills and the Cincinnati Bengals. Bill defensive player DeMar Hamlin in critical condition tonight following a hit on the field in Cincinnati. Hamlin apparently received a blow to the chest from another player after making a tackle. He got up immediately but then fell to the ground. CPR was administered on the field and he was given oxygen before being transported to a Cincinnati area hospital. The game was suspended a short time later. 24-year-old Hamlin is in the middle of his third season with the Bills. He's considered one of the game's star safety. Uh, we are praying for him and his family. Let's go to my colleague and friend, uh, Will Kane, Fox News host, uh, uh, Fox and Friends weekend. Will, uh, you know, we're obviously p praying for uh, him and his family we saw what was happening on the field immediately. You saw those. Okay, well, we'll keep an eye on the news. We'll keep an eye on social media for official sources, for unofficial sources, right? We're going to you know, stay up to date with the, with the latest of uh, what's going on in this you know, shocking place. I've never seen, never seen an NFL player you know, it requires CPR. I've never seen seen, seen that uh, happen before. And so we'll keep an eye on that. Meanwhile, here is a conversation with Chris Kavanaugh from uh, Decoding the Gurus. Everything I've seen from him seems terrible and IDW-esque, but... I would, Ezra Klein, for example, or Matt Iglesias, I would, you know, I would put him that he's leaning in the direction of the, like, Glenn Greenwald and that. But I would still hmm. regard him as, by and large, a kind of centrist-y person and, and probably center-left on, a, a, like, a whole bunch of political topics. He's not someone I really like, by the way, like Matt Iglesias' takes, but this is just, like, my political compass of where I'm slightly... Yeah, no, I don't know enough about him to really be able to gauge that. I know that everything I've seen from him seems terrible and IDW-esque, but there might be a bunch of stuff outside that, So, but I can't judge that. Ezra Klein, I, think... I can say more about. Center-left. Right, like a moderate left. I mean, yeah. like Sam regards him as the, uh, you know, the embodiment. Ultra far, far left. That's, yeah. My version of Ezra is like, he's not that far from me in terms of like neoliberal, you know, centrist hmm. uh, 
moderate person, but he, he might have like more progressive cultural uh, views, like the mm. uh, be more in line there. So like, so that's like, there's, there are things where I would say like, I know when I find out about, you know, when I notice that thing about the Washington Times, for example, right, like, mm -hmm. There comes a point where, you know, I think people such as yourself would be like, well, come on, right? Like publishing in the Washington Times about how we need to, you know, ramp up the defense of Western uh, hmm. values and, and so on. And he defends Douglas Murray. And, you know, you can you can lay out a litany of mm -hmm. examples. And I... I don't disagree, you know, like I asked the, the previous part of this conversation illustrated, I think people are right to to highlight all those and the the point out like, yeah, Tommy Robinson gets everything right on immigration. Like what? <laughs> but but so it's it is it is more of a judgment about that. I I'm factoring in that I think that like. A lot of what Sam seems to care about and increasingly spend time on is like promoting a meditation app, talking about admittedly far flung and like uh, fairly tech bro solutions to like poverty and that kind of thing. But I, I kind of view him as, you know, very, very unlikely to vote for anything right in the, you know, coming uh, decades. And that still counts for something for me. But I... What about I, David Frum then? Uh, David Is he Frum? not right wing because he voted Democrat? No, he, I mean, he is right wing. But the, the difference there is that, like, he's he's openly right wing, right? So like, it's just self-identification then? <laughs> yeah. No, no, it isn't. That's a good point. That's a good point. But like, <laughs> I mean, that David Frum is, you know, a person who's written for conservative news outlets, identifies as a conservative and previously uh, voted conservative. So like identifying him as a right wing neocon kind of fits. I guess I, my argument would be. But, you know, he's way to the left of Sam on several things. I I, ha I haven't paid enough attention, but I have noticed on a couple of occasions that David Frum has like come out, um, you know, with a take that lots of uh, IDW people are disagreeing with, which is should tell you <laughs> something. Um, but. I, I, so I guess I, I I heard Aaron make this pushback, and and I know you already have an answer for it, but I'm I'm going to put the same. But you know, pushback. ultimately, Aaron said he agreed with me on that episode. I know, I know, but okay. Aaron is usually wrong, <laughs> so you know, oh, okay. that's that's uh, <laughs> we just have to factor that in. But um, uh, he, I I know he did, uh, and I think he does agree with you more than me on these kind of issues, but. One point I agreed with him, and I would make like my own version of it, is that do you give room that on the left there is a space for like neo, like a neoliberal centristy position, right? Which is which does all the things that progressives allege of it. You know that it is it is very status quo-y. It is the kind of people that were happy that Biden was elected over Bernie. And, you know, yeah, of I'm, course. regard that as sensible. And so 
if not, like, and maybe also that position includes, for example, that they supported the Iraq. people aren't doing great replacement stuff, like, in my mind. Yes. Or, you yes. know, doing the Breitbart black-on-black crime and, uh, you know, there is no racism anywhere. So Right. But this is like the, you know, the rationalist community in the same way, right? Like, uh, there's a there's a tolerance and there's a lot of uh, like flirting with, you know, and, and there are big segments of that community which are, you know, explicitly horrifically right. Uh, you know, the kind of uh, what's his name, Menchus Moldbug or um, mm-hmm, Curtis Yavin, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Like, so I'm not I'm not saying those aren't a big part of those communities. There are they are, but and that's late star Codex, for example, has done a lot of. Uh, like flirting with mm-hmm. the like when I read his stuff, I often get the impression that you know there's just these lines in it which are not they're not the main point. You know, there's a five thousand word essay and there's just these couple of points in it which are kind of like what <laughs> you know like the well what does that mean? And it kind of hints at something. And I know people re- would regard that as like oh you're reading too much and dog whistles and stuff, but I think there is. Uh, things to no, be but I think about. it's been pretty well documented about that, the yeah. the extremism associations. It, yeah, and I, I think it, you know, revolves around the, the way that that community in general, and Sam would be someone that has had similar issues, has a lot of time for the race and IQ to be in. Mm. Um, Very and, left-wing. Yeah, yes. <laughs> well, like, so there is an area where... I think, for example, that Sam is like incredibly naive, right? Like in the way. Is it really it, naivety, though? Well, is it so, though? Seriously? Yeah. Well, so that's that's the thing, right? Because like you can say, so does Sam? Does Sam not know what like Steve Saylor and Charles Murray and so on are on about? But like when he had that conversation with Ezra, right? And when Ezra asked him about, you know, do you know about human accomplishment, what that book is about? Like, mm. it was quite clear, Sam has no idea. <laughs> and he, and he, he he's not him. interested because he already knows what he likes about yes. him. Yeah, so that that's the point that I, this is like my point of, of like pushback and disagreement, is that like, I don't, so I don't think Sam is interested in defending the race IQ stuff on the basis of the same thing that like Steve Saylor and, and Charles Murray necessarily are. I think Sam's version of it and lots of people in that space is that when they say, oh, it's about academic freedom and it's about the, you know, our ability to deal with taboo topics, like that, that is what they think it's, it's about. And, that means that they become susceptible to the the right wing people that will frame those issues in that way. And now, if you ask me, do I think that deep down they think there are racial differences between like the uh, between different races, right? In in IQ ability, I I think. And you deep played down, clips that I know. It's, so, you don't okay. have to go very deep. <laughs> yeah, it's it's clear that they do. Right. But I, I, I think that the, you know, all the disclaimers that then come out with like people like Sam of saying, you know, and if that is true, I don't want that to be of any relevance to anything that we consider about like any person and so on. I, okay, I think but you, it, you 
do a podcast, you know, analyzing their rhetorical techniques, right? And you yeah. also hear what else Sam is saying about race and racism yeah. in the world. So yes. surely you can see the full picture of all that put together. Right. And I, and I, so I do, I mean, I, at least I think I do, but what I don't, the bit that I don't, uh, like sign off on or is that I, I think Sam's motivations are not, and maybe you agree with this, are not that he, you know, actually wants to promote a like far right political movement into prominence. It, it is that he wants to like that he thinks politi- like uh, what you might call it academic freedom and the tough discussions of stuff that that's what it's about and it's about the left overreaching and Douglas Murray is just somebody who's very Okay, let's go back to uh, Fox News here. An arrhythmia that can make your heart stop. Um, so whenever your heart isn't beating properly, when it's quivering, when it goes into what's called ventricular ventricular fibrillation, you have to take action immediately within one to two minutes. Every minute that passes is a reduced chance of survival. And God bless the medics there on the field. They got to him immediately. They started CPR immediately because if your heart isn't beating properly, you're not getting blood flow to the brain, to the rest of your body. And that's when you faint. That's when you collapse. That can happen in just a matter of seconds. Now, could that blunt force trauma to the chest have caused his heart to stop or go into an abnormal rhythm? Or maybe did he have something else going on, like an aneurysm in in, in some part of his body, in his brain, in his aorta that maybe started to bleed? We don't know the exact details. But yes, when you hear that someone's not breathing on their own, um, it's scary. It's frightening. But that can happen if you go unconscious, if your heart stops, if you go into an abnormal rhythm, you have trouble breathing and they have to put sometimes what's called an, an intubation tube um, to down into your, your lungs, into your heart area to help you to breathe until you're strong enough, until they can get your heart strong enough to beat on its own. You know, Dr. J- Jeanette Nesselot, you know... I- okay, so NFL Network says that uh, the Buffalo Bills safety's vital signs have returned to normal after on-field collapse and hospitalization. So it looks like he's going to survive. What happened tonight or what could have happened before? Could that be a possibility for this moment? Because when you look at it and if you've been watching football your entire life, it didn't look like anything was abnormal. Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, could he have been fighting a cold or maybe had some sort of viral illness? We we don't know. But, you know, these NFL players, they're in tip-top shape and condition. You know, they have the best medical care, and you know, they, they undergo physical examinations and, and, you know, EKGs and echoes to make sure that they're in the best shape from literally head to toe. So, you know, I, I would assume that if he wasn't feeling well or doing well, that his his coach and the team doctors would say, hey, why don't you sit out this game? Um, but, you know, sometimes the players, they're, they're so excited and they're so eager to play for their team and for their community, they don't realize the extent of, of you know, their condition. And, and, yes, it is possible that if he was already feeling under the weather or if there was something else going on, then this blow to the chest just kind of put him over the edge. But, again, we don't know. We're waiting for more information um, to come out. But in the meantime, we just we need to pray for this young man and his family. 
Yeah. Dr. Siegel, um, we're just getting word from our newsroom that we should be expecting a press conference uh, at the hospital. Uh, do you expect them to share um, a lot of... How on earth is this guy a cable news host? He, he can barely speak. For DeMar right now, I know the entire league is praying for him right now. What can we expect at this press conference? I think that they'll probably, that's a great question. I think they'll probably reveal some basics. Now, you know, he clearly made it to the hospital. He clearly is being called in critical condition, which shows that he's alive. Question is, is he back in a normal rhythm? I want to know that. I think they might reveal that. You mentioned a ventilator. You know, that would be standard, by the way. Someone that's been in a cardiac arrest that's brought back by CPR, that's brought to a hospital, you want to decrease the pressure on the brain. You want to get control of the lungs. And you want the person to be asleep because you don't you don't want to be assessing this right away. That's how we get control. So if he's on a ventilator, that's what I expect them to say. And that's not a bad sign. You know, I want I would love to hear that he's breathing properly, that his heart is back in normal rhythm and that, again, the blood flow to the brain was preserved. That's key. We may get some of that information now. Yeah. Dr. Mark Siegel, Dr. Jeanette Neshaw, thanks so much for joining the program tonight on this breaking news. So we want to go to our friend Jim Gray. Jim, you've been doing this for a long time. You have covered uh, multiple athletes. You've been a sportscaster for a while. You're a Fox News contributor. You've interviewed the best of the best. You've seen them be resilient. You've seen them at their worst. What is your reaction to what's happening tonight? Okay, so Half Galician has returned. Isn't this a huge overreaction game's? resumed after much worse. I, I can't recall ever before in a major American sport seeing a player given CPR on the field. I can't recall any incident that's even close to this. So if you can recall incidents close to this, uh, let me know. There was a Danish player who collapsed from a heart attack and they suspended the game. And uh, that, that player is now fine playing again. But I never recall in, in the NFL the NBA, in uh, Major League Baseball, I never recall uh, a player being given CPR on a field. So here we'll play a little Fox News while I pull everything together. Team doctors, uh, who are these physicians and these attending uh, uh, first responders at games, uh, ambulances are there and are ready. Uh, we see this a lot uh, in boxing, where guys have been knocked out and are transported to hospitals uh, and uh, have, have, have been able to, you know. So, yeah, after a boxing match, all right, uh, boxers have died. So you'll have a boxer collapse in the ring and get transported to hospital and declared dead. So I'm aware of that, but I've never recorded an NFL game, Major League Baseball game, or a National Basketball Association game. So let's get here a conversation between the two hosts of Decoding the Gurus. Matt Brown, Chris Cavanaugh, this was recorded about six months ago, back in August of 2022. They're talking here about uh, their greater reluctance to criticize people on the left. So when it comes to these two center-left professors, I often hear them call people on the right pieces of shit and other derogatory terms. I don't recall them ever saying this about anyone on the left. Well informed um, and better than both of us. So, uh, but... We are like, we're going to do a 
we'll have a couple more people that I think we have to do for the tech season. Like we, we really do need to do a Bitcoin EP person and we like whatever his name is, Balaji Srinivasan. Um, uh, I know he's like an investor type as well. And people want us quite a lot to do Elon Musk. I kind of don't want to do him because I think it'll just be annoying to listen to him or Peter Thiel. But Peter, so I think we'll probably choose between Peter Thiel and Musk. <laughs> and we did take a vote on the Patreon before. Um, and I I can't remember who won, so I have to go back and look. But uh, I think it was like a dead heat between Thiel and Musk. And Amber says don't do Elon. So look, that that's why he's out. <laughs> so, so. I, I just found out the other day that Peter Thiel is a New Zealand citizen. You, did you know that? I know that, yeah. He's like yeah. Uh, building his, uh, his layer. Yeah. Layer down there. Yeah. He seems like such a piece of shit. He is a piece uh, of shit. But I've listened to some of his lectures as well. And it's like, you know... Wow. Okay. These are two center left uh, university professors and uh, they, they do the show Decoding the Gurus, but just uh, effortlessly referring to Peter Thiel, other people on the right as pieces of shit. I just don't recall them doing the same for anyone on the left. It's probably, he did get interviewed by Eric for the first episode of The Portal. So Eric Weinstein. we have a look at what I never, I didn't listen to that. I mean, I listened to it, but I wasn't listening in, in the same way. That might be interesting. Um, okay. So, okay. yeah. So maybe, as JT says, maybe not Musk, but maybe Teal. Well, I mean, we know Eric, right? So that interview will just be funny because Eric will will frame things <laughs> in self-aggrandizing ways and he'll reference all his little pet peeves. So that might yeah. be okay. And it's historical. It's the first episode of The Portal. Um, so we might do that. But we also want to get into left-wing gurus and yeah okay it's true Dominic depends on your definition of historical but the um okay here are some good uh, twitter threads from from uh, Steve Saylor which I'll pull up in a second I thought I had it the uh like we want to do D'Angelo because she's on some blurb we wrote ages ago and we never did her um because it, yeah. it felt a bit like especially at that time it was just like yeah, everyone was putting the barrel. Yeah, and everyone was putting the boot into D'Angelo, so it felt like superfluous. So we want to do a couple of lefty people. Might do Chomsky because everyone says we can't do Chomsky, but Okay, so Steve Saylor got back from his Twitter suspension three days early, so maybe all the all the people who are tweeting out Elon Musk and uh, Musk got uh, perhaps Steve Saylor out of Twitter jail three days early. And uh, Sue Saylor writes, New York Times reports on Eudora, Arkansas, a depopulating small town plagued by so many shootings by teens that the mayor declared an 8 p.m. curfew. You and I would guess that Eudora is 90% black, but the New York Times features in his promotional tweet photo, a rare white Eudoran. Wow, so is the New York Times playing games with us? I'd love to watch a really hard-hitting show, something like Succession, but exposing the power plays and internecine squabbles driving left-wing legacy newspapers. I 100% believe that that would be the hottest show on TV. Steve Saylor says, my theory is that 20-something women with lowly jobs in media companies have such astonishing ideological power because they tend to have Me Too-era blackmail material on top of management. So perhaps the executive vice president did put a hand on her leg at the 2019 office Christmas party. So here is what Victor Hugo actually looked like at age 23 in 1825. He didn't have light brown skin. He was an extremely fair blonde man. But uh, <laughs> look, 
Look at the colorization of statue made of the great author Victor Hugo, made him look as black as a Senegalese sculptor. <laughs> now the French aren't too happy about uh, Victor Hugo being turned turned black. Steve Saylor says Celine Dion is white, so she is not eligible for Rolling Stone's list of the greatest singers. Oh, so. Uh, New York Times reporter on Eudora has to communicate the real story about white youths in Eudora, Arkansas, shoot each other so much by relying on racial stereotypes like chicken wing spot. Curfew has prompted complaints from residents concerned about losing their ability to move freely. The proprietor of a liquor store in a chicken wing spot worried about losing money. And just scrolling through Steve Saylor's Twitter feed. National Institutes of Health now blocks access to an important database if it thinks a scientist's research may enter forbidden racial territory. Rick Rojas, the New York Times, sure knows a lot about Arkansas, except he can't mention race once, despite racial issues in the South being okay to hammer on at any other time. This is in the worst part of the Mississippi Delta. Eudora. Arkansas. The people from Eudora, Arkansas, with something on the ball, are probably relocated by now, such as to the suburbs of Dallas, leaving behind a less and less competent small town population. Imagine having to find unattractive women attractive. There's been a massive effort over the last decade to socially engineer humans to find fat women, black women, and especially fat black women to be models of feminine beauty. Don't know if it worked, but they're certainly trying. So Steve retweets this thread. Early in my career, I consulted for Coke to ensure sugar taxes failed and soda was included in food stamp funding. I saw, I say Coke's policies are evil. Because I saw inside the room, the first step in the playbook was paying the NAACP and other civil rights groups to call opponents racist. Coke gave millions to the NAACP and the Hispanic Federation. Conversations inside these rooms were depressingly transactional. We, Coke, will give you money. You need to paint opponents of us as racist. The effort was successful. The message was carried on in thousands of articles between 2011 and 2013. So Coke's position was clear. Soda is one of the cheapest ways to get calories. Flagrantly inaccurate statement when factoring in the health consequences. So minority groups and Coke teamed up. I watched as the FDA funneled money to professors at leading universities as well as think tanks on the left and right to create studies showing soda taxes hurt the poor. They also paid for studies saying that drinking soda didn't cause obesity. Not mentioned in these studies is that incontrovertible fact, sugary drinks are one of the top causes of obesity and diabetes, leading to harrowing statistics. Soda companies are deeply embedded in the U.S. Department of Agriculture, so much so that the agency carries discredited talking points like there are no bad food, only bad diets. This ignores the fact that sugar is highly addictive and has negative nutritional value. People saying that restricting soda from SNAP funding is paternalistic or an assault on personal choice. They're unwittingly doing the work of the soda companies. You can't have a free market if that market is rigged. Okay, let's uh, check in with uh, 
the Fox News coverage. And here. you're seeing it on the screen now. Like, that's what these guys were doing. And, and I, it would have been dangerous to go back into this game. So the NFL made the right call. I don't think there's any reason people should be upset with the NFL for taking a while to make the call. No harm, no foul. Nobody was out on that field. It would have been dangerous for guys trying to play after that. I actually think there would have been significantly more injuries if that did happen. The right thing happened, and everybody now, I, I just read a tweet from uh, Joe Danman of Fox 19 in Cincinnati. He said, the Bills are getting on a plane. They're going home. They're not staying, sticking around for this week to, uh, to try to play the game again. They're all in prayer, trying to make sure that they're interceding on their teammates' behalf. You know, TJ, what you just said was so profound. I mean, for all the talk in our culture that we have. Okay, we'll keep an eye on uh, what's going on with that Fox, with that uh, Buffalo Bill safety. So Steve Saylor said, I had an eye-opening moment about U.S. corporate capitalism in the 1990s when hearing an executive at a famous snack corporation announce their ultimate corporate goal was to have their tasty snacks within arm reach of all Americans at all times. Uh-oh. If you read the New York Times article about Eudora, Arkansas, or the shootings there, if you read carefully all the way to the end, you'll notice mostly pictures of black adults and references to black-sounding first names. But if you skim first few paragraphs, you won't see this. So... Steve Saylor was released from Twitter Gulag after four days, given no explanation for either action by Twitter. He's put in Twitter Gulag for simply accurately reporting FBI crime statistics. Here is a New York Times op-ed complaining against prejudice and discrimination against short people. Being a New York Times op-ed, it doesn't dare criticize the prime practitioners of heightism, women in the dating market. He says, Jane Austen novels are an admirable byproduct of runaway sexual selection for verbal ability. A 60-year-old 5'3 billionaire with a 25-year-old 6-foot fashion model wife is not a man to be trifled with. He knows more ways to ruin your life than you can imagine. Due to improvements in nutrition, the class difference in height has shrunk. Today, differences in height are mostly due to genetics which is only vaguely related to how good a provider a husband would be. But women still tend to be highly bigoted in t favor of tall men. Identity politics works to make certain groups being seen as above criticism, even at the expense of them being seen as beneath agency. So that's what wokeism, that's an excellent definition of wokeism. There are certain groups such as women, Jews, gays, blacks, homosexuals, the transgender who are above criticism that they are a sacred group. Steve Saylor says, a huge fraction of New York Times subscribers are paying not to be informed about what they are presently ignorant, but to be reassured that their worldview is right, that the good guys who are determined by identity and politics do good things and the bad guys do bad things. Male height used to be a proxy for how affluent a man's relatives were, but now it's mostly a pretty random genetic thing. So historian Barbara Tuckman's book about the European class system in the 1890s, The Proud Tower, starts off with a lengthy description of how Lord Salisbury's Tory cabinet in 1895 averaged at least five inches taller than the electorate. That's less true these days. So Steve Saylor says, My impression is that women are rather social constructionist in desires. 
yet nobody ever feels it reasonable to socially construct American women to not be so heightest. My six foot two best friend married a five foot eight Filipino pointed out that while everybody in Los Angeles hates somebody else, nobody hates Filipinos. Okay, keeping an eye on this story of the Buffalo Bills safety being intubated, carried away to hospital in critical condition after absorbing a brutal hit on the field while he was making a tackle. Meanwhile, I'll play a little bit from conversation here between Professors Matt Brown and Chris Cavanaugh of Decoding the Gurus. It's really obvious that we can do Chomsky. Yeah. <laughs> it would be quite easy to, to do him. It might be a bit boring. I don't know if you've ever yeah. listened to Chomsky talk, but it's not yeah. the most no. stimulating affair. Oh, Jason Stanley. Look, <laughs> Jason Stanley, I don't think he's a good person to do. I mean, he might be fun to do, but the thing is, like, well, one, I've never seen his lecture, so I can't judge on that. But the other thing is that he, it feels a little bit like I've talked, we've talked about this, Matt, that like Jason is somebody who seems to be on the precipice of becoming a uh, like caricature of themselves. It's unclear to what extent he's like kind of trolling Twitter and to what extent he's a narcissistic maniac. <laughs> and, uh, and he's not always terrible. He sometimes has, you know, reasonable takes, but like, he like he, he tweeted out something and I just remember him putting in brackets geniuses like me. And it was like, is that a dig at yourself or is that? But there's no sign that it's a dig. So it kind of feels like a James Lindsay persona. Um, mm. And so as someone, as someone whose jokes, as someone whose irony and stuff like that on Twitter often falls flat, I, I feel like I have to extend the benefit of the doubt. Yeah, Wilson, Wilson mentioned he's a bit unwell. And I do acknowledge that, you know, there's like obviously what's his face james Lindsay is unwell too and so you know it's not it's not entirely that it's just there's something about jason stanley that feels like we shouldn't do it now it's not that he's off the table but just not now laurie penny we could do but again i mean this is not a reason not to do it but just being honest if we do laurie penny we're going to get like we'll likely get hassle from laurie penny okay so laurie penny is a an affluent left-wing uh, British journalist who can make your life miserable if you criticize her. Right, here is Enoch Powell, not so happy about Britain joining the, Euro- joining the European Union. This is from the early 1970s. To on tell us, as we uh, have told us, Cabot that show. the self-respect and the greatness of Britain didn't depend, as we had allowed them to tell us, as we had told ourselves for so many years, on having those great possessions and those great stretches of the map. Uh, And if I had to summarize in one sentence what I think I'm trying to do in politics, I'm trying to tell the people of Britain that they don't have to be big to be great. Yes. If they wanted to be big now, what good would it do them? I don't mean that. Exactly so. Yeah. And I think that, uh, you know, in the... um, attempt to join the common market and I'm opposed to that Yes. there's a great deal of this instinctive post-imperial wish to be big if we've lost the empire the crude idea runs let's join something else big what is it? oh yes, Europe and you hear Mm. people going about saying Britain would regain a voice in the councils of the world by being part of Europe well that's really nonsense you know 
we should simply be merged in something very different, or at any rate, be all the time refusing to be merged in it, and there's not much future in that. Uh, after all, Britain was Britain long before there was an empire, and she had what was afterwards recognised as the empire, long before the imperialists came along, right at the end of the 19th century, and told the British, you know, you're great because you've got a great empire. It was a very late development. It was almost a decadent development. It was all crammed into that last 10 or 15 years before World War I. But the time and the ideas that are most difficult to escape from are those of the world that you were born into. And being born just before World War I, I, it was all these ideas, the ideas of imperialism, uh, which were the air that one breathed uh, as a child and a young man. I suppose every generation has to recover from what it was taught in its youth. Mm -hmm. Hey, that uh, was Enoch Powell on the prospects of Europe, uh, joining the European Union. In the program, we are covering the breaking news of Buffalo's Bills safety. DeMar Hamlin listed in critical condition. Um, this Fox News host can barely speak. On the field, um, they say he is in stable uh, condition. We are anticipating there's some conflicting reports, a, a press conference. Uh, we want to go to our friend Michelle Tafoya, former sideline reporter for NBC Sports. Um, you, you've been very close to these athletes. You've seen some of the, these injuries. What is your reaction to this breaking news today and the man he was? He is. He is, yes, and we we pray that that remains the case. I know the whole nation is praying for this kid, whose name many people probably didn't know until tonight. But mm -hmm. this is such a human moment, right? We've seen injuries before. This one, initially, it, you know, you see the hit, you see him fall backwards, and I know we're not showing that, but it didn't look like much. And it looked like a, a an everyday NFL hit. And so yeah. when he got up and then stumbled backward, it was really hard to understand what may have happened. The ensuing moments were really the telling part. No camera, no camera angle could have shown us exactly how tense the situation was. But what you saw on the players' faces and the way that the tears started falling and the prayers started happening and the rapidity which with the, the, the two athletic training staffs came out there, I will tell you this, having served on the sidelines for decades, the athletic training staff, the medical personnel on those sidelines are so well trained to react as speedily as possible in these situations. Same with spinal cord injuries. This is something they've trained for. They rehearsed this stuff. So they were ready to roll. And, you know, that, that it, thank God, was the case here tonight. Uh, but it, you still can't diminish the seriousness and, and the heartfelt angst on the players' faces and the coaches' faces and everything that followed, it 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 really is just such a jarring moment, but such a a rare one, really. A, a so there's a NBC host. He was the primary host to essentially stop calling, stop wanting to work on national football. Bob Costas, who essentially retired from covering, you know, being a host for NFL games because he just thought the the sport was so incredibly damaging. Uh, this is Australia's longest-serving 
Prime Minister Sir Robert Menzies on Australia's immigration policy. I believe that the, white, the so-called white Australia policy will always be a stumbling block? I don't think it's such a stumbling block as people pretend, but that it's important for us. I haven't the slightest doubt that we should maintain it the way it is. As long as we possibly can, we ought to aim at having a homogeneous population. I don't want to see reproduced in Australia the kind of problem they have in South Africa or in America or increasingly in Great Britain. I think we, it's been a very good policy and it's been of great value to us. And I, uh, most of the criticism of it that I've ever heard doesn't come from these oriental countries. It comes from wandering Australians. For these years, of course, in the past, Sir Robert, you have been described as a racist. Have I? I have read this, yes. Well, I'm, if I were not described as a racist, I'd be the only public man who hasn't been. That's one of these jargons, isn't it? One of these mod words you call a man a racist. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, Sir Robert Menzies, Australia's longest-serving Prime Minister. Let me play a little bit more here from Professors Matt Brown, Chris Cavanaugh, host of Decoding the Guru's podcast, about uh, their reluctance to tackle various prominent left-wing media figures. <laughs> that's just not something I'm hugely looking forward to. That's, again, not a reason not to do it. But I, I think some of the left-wing gurus are going to be quite sensitive types to critique, especially if they come from the left and get, uh, what sort of hassle? Online hassle. Um, have you never seen what Laurie Penny does when people criticize her? <laughs> Adam, follow her. It's like the same as doing Owen Jones is what it would be like. And again, I don't think that means that we can't do Owen Jones. It just means that we have to, like, we have to be ready for that because the right wing people don't really care what we say you know they can just like ignore us in most occasions but and Rico Bregman for example ignored us you know if they're big they don't care but there is a certain set of people that are extremely reactive to criticism and who are very uh like policing about you know where criticism comes from and I would say Laurie Penny Owen Jones and I don't know about Jason Stanley. He probably gets enough criticism that it just just would be an alert added to the pile. But um, yeah, so uh, their tactics to avoid criticism are effective. Yes, because they're peeing in the arse. <laughs> that's, the, that's the thing. So I, I don't think that's a good reason not to do them. But just as humans, me and Matt, you know, do we really want to encourage Laurie Penny's minions to like... Uh, yeah, send emails to our dean, you know, kind of thing. For a couple of weeks, yeah. The, like The right-wingers don't know how to hurt us, but the left-wingers do. <laughs> yeah. So we're still going to do them, you know. Yeah. We, we'll still do them, but we just have to be a bit strategic about when we do things and, and who we do in what order and all that kind of stuff. So this is not saying we'll never do Laurie Penny or something like that. Like, I think Laurie Penny is really rich uh, for that kind of thing, but it will it will lead to... <laughs> Hassle, I, I can I can tell that. I've actually written a blog post reviewing Laurie Penny's old um oh no sorry, it was Alex not Alex Jones. Uh what's his face? What do you call the blonde guardian guy, the left wing man? Um he wrote a book called Chav. Owen Jones Owen Owen Jones? Is that his name? Yeah. Uh I thought you were just talking about Owen Jones. Who were you talking about before? Laurie Penny. Yeah, no, Owen Jones. I did. I have a review of his podcast on Medium. 
if you want to look up, that would give you a general idea of my opinion. Yeah. <laughs> so it's yeah, actually, I, I read my review and it was a little bit, I was a little bit more harsh back when I was writing then. I think mm. I hadn't been on Twitter, maybe a bit more heterodox pilled. So um, yeah, there's a historic yeah. document there for anybody that wants to search it out. He is, uh, yeah, I haven't seen a great deal of him. What I've seen is insufferable. I have to say, I just find him, his just personality yes. insufferable. I, I find, like, if you want my hot take on Owen Jones, I regard him kind of like the same way I regard Russell Brand. I know he's better informed about left-wing politics and all that, but I feel that a lot of it is about him preening himself yeah. over his, like, right-on attitudes and, and kind of seeking to penalize or ostracize anybody that doesn't share them. And I, I think he, share, like, reserves a lot of his vitriol for other people on the left. So... I'm not a big fan of Owen Jones. <laughs> no, no. Mm. Mm, anyway. It's Chav, Chav book as well. Like, just just while we're on the subject, like, you know, Chav is this word that means, I know you know, Matt, but just for anybody that doesn't, Chav is like the disparaging term for uh, working class people in the UK. And I think every society has their versions of it, right? Like, uh, what do you call them? The ones in Australia? Bogans. Bogans, right. Uh, there's a superhero that's a bogan. Um, in the, there's a Bogan superhero, it's like Captain Boomerang or something. And then um, the in in Northern Ireland they were called Spides. Um, and anyway, he wrote a book about this kind of demonization of the working class and so on. And you know, it makes plenty of good points about the way that there is a casual bigotry towards working class people. Um, but I also can't help but think that like Owen Jones is an Oxbridge educated like guy, and I. Having spent time around spies growing up and, and had various conflicts with them, there is reasons that people criticize that kind of working class culture, which is not just like uh, yeah. elite bigotry. It's like extremely homophobic, extremely intolerant and, and quite violent, like subculture, yeah. at least it was in Belfast. So yeah. yeah, I'm the same. I have, it's compl- I have complicated feelings about it. Like I live in a small rural hamlet really it's you know Bund- the Bundaberg white bay region is the most so- lowest socioeconomic place this is Pauline Hanson country uh, and she's that right-wing populist that means nothing but, to anyone Matt, except that is nothing to anyone except other <laughs> yeah. and it's hard to explain but yeah um like on one hand I happily live in a suburb with with my neighbors are uh whatever you what you want to call them bogans working class whatever and they're not as on one hand and then a lot, I know a lot of academics that are just snobs, basically. And yeah, yeah. They, they, they stay well clear of them. They make sure that their kids go to private schools. My kids go to a private yep. school. They, they, uh, they, they will not mix with them. They um, make sure that um, they, they, they live in the, the fanciest suburb that they can afford. So that they're just well, they just mix in different circles. And, and we don't do that for various reasons. Um, and on one hand, I, I just feel like, I feel like this guy, Owen Jones, he's like everyone, all of the, the, the people that are the comfortable middle class people I know, they 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 talk about bogans like they're another species, but they talk about them, but they'll they'll often t- adopt Owen Jones's thing yeah. as as like a sign of how right on they are. But they're just hypocrites, basically. Like, and, yeah, and, and when you actually live with them and know them, like you do, Chris, you know that it's pretty rough. There's a lot of stuff that is pretty ugly and that is not good. On the other hand, they're just they're normal people. They're just like people. Yeah, just people. That's the <laughs> there's good bits and there's bad bits, and that's that's it. So like, but the noble savage kind of is, yeah. it is like a, a version of the working class as noble savages, and you're like, no, they're just they're just ordinary people doing a specific type of job, and some of them are nice, some of them aren't, and there's parts of the like prevalent culture which are good and parts which aren't, and that's 
that's it. And like, it's the same for the middle class as the same for the upper class. And the, yeah, I, I just, I don't like the, I know that it's prevalent on the left, like the lionizing of the working class, but it, it is whenever it's the kind of hypocritical, uh, like lionizing of the working class when you are clearly completely out of that like, class yeah. and you don't mix and in those circles. That feels mm, disingenuous. Yeah, that's it. Yes, very well put, Adam. Like romanticized by the left, demonized by the right. Yes. Yeah, we have I, input. Yeah. 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 So that, like, yeah, just I mean, Belfast has been slightly despitified. <laughs> Not slightly. <laughs> it's, it's quite seriously despitified, but since um, it became, you know, like the the the, the, yeah. the wheel of time turns and society changes. But well, like, they used to beat well, you up for just having baggy trousers, Matt. That was yeah. that was reason to attack you on the street. That's not. Well, well, the interesting thing, I mean, it's true about the romanticization, but it's also true, like, like the left really do despise, like the modern left really do despise working class people, like the kinds of people, like the people that voted for Pauline Hanson are the people around here, right? This is the One Nation Party, right, for everyone. This is populist, stupid, right, extreme, hard right politics, right? And racism is certainly a part of Pauline Hanson's platform. On the other hand, what you understand when you live with these people is these people but they that's not that's not actually usually the primary reason that they're voting for someone like pauline hansen right they the other reasons aren't necessarily very good ones like they hate the banks right they feel like they've been left behind by the things they're often like so i'm not sort of justifying it but at the same time it's misunderstood you know what i mean so there's this comp this, this com combination of how they're viewed um by the elites or whatever or academics which i think just they misunderstand them because they don't know them they haven't met them they this they both they both romanticize them and despise them kind of simultaneously and they kind of get it wrong you know um the it's, general, very hard, it's very hard for me to explain yeah. no but it's, it's it's also the thing that you find in anthropology or like you know just even living in a like living in japan right like there's often people who are kind of adopt a right on defensive attitude about japan or whatever but they don't really treat japanese people like like people they treat them as if they're a you know, like a kind of high mind. And, and this also applies to Japanese people who present Japan to the outside world. Because they saw Okay, let's uh, go back to Fox News, get the latest on this story. And we do the best we can, but every so often you have to sit down, review the rules, review the protocols. But what we saw tonight, um, you know, this is not a common occurrence. It, it's quite rare. No. And that's a good thing. And, and unfortunately, that happens. You know, this is a contact sport. It's a dangerous sport. Anything can happen. But, you know, you know these, these athletes, they know the risk that they're taking, and they do this because they love what they do. And that's just part of life. Yeah. You know, Docs, I am a supporter of medicine and prayer. I feel like we need them both. Uh, I'm sorry. I, I can't take that, that host. He just sounds so stupid. Sometimes adopt a thing where they can speak for the entire culture. And like, I, I know that everyone does that, right? Everybody talks about where they're from and talks about, you know, the, the like in a kind of essentialized way. But it, but it's just there's like a difference between when you are, are aware that you're presenting a particular perspective, like your upbringing and your background and when you're saying that everyone is like this and it's all <laughs> in agreement and like the one thing that is like crystal clear because of northern ireland for example is like i don't represent all of northern ireland because not least because 50 percent of them uh were in complete completely different political and um you know whatever yeah. like physical locations in the city that, that i couldn't go to um without feeling scared so First yeah and, um, just yeah, probably i think that's that's part of the issue 
I took as well is like just just not recognizing that people are like messy and the, the there isn't like an all good thing, no bad thing. This is this is the same point that comes up with like institutions constantly for me. It's oh, like yeah. we we when we get criticized for um like being defenders of the mainstream, the main point is usually like or at least part of it is because we are saying institutions are always going to have like crap bits. They're always going to be ineffective. Public health messaging is always going to be imperfect. And that doesn't mean you just give a pass to everything that any government does, but it just means you factor that in, that there is no utopian world where scientists communicate perfectly and everything, every policy enacted is like economically and scientifically literate. Like, no, just price in that people are stupid and that governments do stupid things and so on and, and do that. And you can still criticize them, but just like you cannot presented as that never yeah. the alternative is that it never happens yeah it's like when you read about people talking about what's going on in universities <laughs> when they don't work in one and it's so cartoonish um uh, it's yeah. i can't I, and we always end up with, in a little bit of a flummox there because can't tell if it's matt and me like we know there are other academics that we've talked to who have similar experiences to us and that like the caricature is like it's a really obviously it's a caricature but it but it also is the case that there are a lot of people that complain about like kind of the you know administrative putting requirements on or this these kind of uh, like box ticking exercises that they're being forced to endure. So there are people that complain, and it's kind of it's just hard to tell to what extent it applies cross culturally or across yeah. institutions. Yeah, we don't know if where we work is so di like how different it is from but i know i know where i work <laughs> it's different well where, i know where i work is different from an ivy league american university i know that but um yeah but should we Sorry. be comparing everything to ivy league universities like, no okay but, 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 but even a typical i don't know more typical american state university i don't know yeah. I, I, you know you have to work there i guess to know yeah and they don't and they do not so yeah, yeah. well anyway thank you also we will get into like left-wing uh characters um and if you have people you want us to cover let us know and like like i say we'll be we're pretty honest and direct if people suggest people and we don't like if someone said do you want do you think like laurie penny is you could cover as a guru the answer is yes and like do you want to not right now <laughs> right now but you know at at some point she probably is someone and if we're looking at left-wing people it might make sense to do so um but but yeah so the the left wing can generally cause more hassle for us than the right wing. It is true because we are on the left. So like your your in group is able to cause you more hassle. So bear that in mind, everyone. You don't want to cause us hassle. You wouldn't want us to have hassle, would you? You wouldn't want that. You wouldn't want. You that. want us to have hassle. Different hassle. We've got a we got a funny review which um me at this point and it like uh, uh it, that was it, it it said we're wealthy cis uh like the elite wealthy this meals and we're just like we're we're destroying the i can't even remember the whole argument but it was it was basically the they were saying you know look we even covered candy and then wherever we're teaching that's the uh we need to be removed from our positions now i wasn't sure if it's a parody because it's so on the nose so, it was so over, to, over the top yeah but but that is uh, like uh ran it past aaron who is our kind of woke reader <laughs> and he he said it could be real because he, he it looks thought, he like thought it things was real. seen and, should... and the point is the end of that, the conclusion of that like screed was and they should be removed from the university positions. See, the left 
the left mind going there is like that's how yeah. you that's how you attack yeah and two, it, two white cis wealthy old men celebrate their diversity by not having american access and tell us how and what to think don't let the thinly veiled description of their objectivity and self-titled skeptic position fool you they are not allies and use their privilege to claim back claim black people are just playing victims their analysis of Abraham x is primarily a character assassination and a woeful bias. Ever heard of ad hominem? Ex- many exclamation marks and question points. You can talk down to black people all day from your ivory towers. Notice how they're blurred. Boast about Tatman, Robin DeAngelo. I can't Perhaps it is not too easy to, to use your brilliant objective minds to laugh at real science and common sense. I think that's why we haven't covered Robin DeAngelo. This blend of biasness and harmful material needs to be stamped out. If these two are lecturers at universities spreading this type of poison, they must be removed. No one cares what you weird comms think anymore. I wish they'd just go away. So that's a harsh review. Um, I don't know what a weird comm is, but I, you see, there's one bit that makes me think that's a parody, Matt. The bit where they destri- describe D'Angelo as like just giving science and common sense. Like, does nobody, <laughs> does anybody really argue that? Like, I mean, I know there are people that like D'Angelo, but I've never heard someone saying she's just spewing science. Like, yeah, that, yeah, that, that's yeah. why I thought it was possibly a parody anyway. The, the reason why people can cause us hassle is that, or cause me hassle in particular, right, is that someone who's a bit more articulate and could just dial it down a little bit could make a whole bunch of similar nebulous claims about how bad I am in a, in a, in a racist sense, in a privileged sense, in a misogynist, well, well, you know, those things, and can send it to my dean and all that thing, and they'll now, go, ah, oh, here's, here's a problem. And then, and then no, no, I know there's no evidence. I to damage you. No <laughs> okay, forget, forget this. Yeah, but it would be a hassle. Um, I... Yeah, you'd have to, I mean, because they'd go, well, how do we tell? Right, okay, we got to, they're not, not going to listen to the podcast. Um, Any time so that you have just... to explain to university administrators why you're not a sexist misogynist, it's not going to be a good conversation. No, because they're unhappy with you to begin with because you've given them an extra job. And yeah. Um, yeah. These are, these are the, the reality. So it's just, it's just something that we have to factor <laughs> in, but we'll. We do. It doesn't mean we won't cover the left-wing people. In fact, that's more of the reason why they have to be covered. But we just have to be smart about the the way we approach and timing and all those kind of things. And uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, but but they're not getting away. Because no, they're not that. getting away. No, we're really it's a hassle, but we're definitely. Well, in fact, I've already warned various higher ups that look, expect it. You can expect, you know, yeah, you know, from time to time, probably, this may happen. And we have a good track record. In fact, we're going to be dealing with people from the manosphere, like that guy. Yeah. Are we not at some point? Oh no, that was actually my idea. I've actually got a PhD. <laughs> um, I have right, a about this, Chris. Um, actually, no, we we might not right on the podcast, but you might be co-supervising a PhD student who's very interested in looking at that subgenre of gurus that are really into like the manosphere. So the Andrew Tate guy sort of oh, inspired yeah. it. I mean, he's horrible and and extreme, but there's the whole thing, including our friend, what's his name, that young guy. Oh, Chris Williamson. Chris Williamson, like all these manosphere types telling young men how to be popular with ladies and be successful and strong and ripped and all that stuff. Um, I think that's a pretty interesting little thing in itself. And so she's got a background. She's, she's actually this was the CEO of a, of a charity that focused on domestic violence and stuff. So she is interested in this sort of misogyny angle with these people. So um, yeah, that seems actually kind of like an interesting thing. I think it'd be a good sociological type PhD to sort of look at that, you know, just to find that thing and just understand yeah, yeah, what's yeah. going on. I, yeah. I, I don't have, I have no issue with like the manosphere can't do anything. 
like because we're not in the manosphere, so there's no problem to <laughs> to, to examine the manosphere. But um, uh, yeah. But, but, but if we if we really kick the manosphere in the guts, then we might have a permission slip to who was that? Who was that lady that we we're gonna do on the left? Laurie Penny. Laurie Penny. Yeah. Then I mean, I mean, we don't get a permission slip. We'll never. She'll always react very badly. <laughs> so it's just it's. Uh, but uh, but yes, if you were going to do that, it might be something that you might do, which would be like the manosphere for a while before that <laughs> but but that would be a false equivalence man so we wouldn't be so coarse as to <laughs> plot something like that but if that happened by chance that would just be fortunate no we're so. good no no we're, I wanted, we're going to be doing that anyway or at least this hopefully the student will anyway yeah but um yeah so that's it so now we've spelled out in concrete details the way that people can cause us hassle <laughs> and we are going to release this publicly for people who simply play ten dollars um for everyone that's here and heard this shh Okay, don't tell anyone. Don't tell anyone. It's common sense. It should be common sense for anybody with, uh, like, uh, brain. But you know, yeah. people just complain on Twitter, which is fine. Just let them complain on Twitter. <laughs> That's what we want. The the demonologists don't need to email us. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that is. They are easy to find. That's a problem, Amber. They're extremely easy to find because of various profiles. Um. So, so yes. Well, but we trust all of you. We're gonna we're gonna go as well, Adam. So don't worry. But um, yeah. So, look, this is us. What's that thing? You, uh, there's this uh, technique in personality psychology where you tell people intimate details and then it makes them like more tightly bonded. So that's what we're doing. We're exposing our exhaust pipe on the Death Star. <laughs> you can trusting you. Sh- Tr- trusting you plans. that you're not going to... Please don't penetrate our exhaust pipe. No, should um, you share plans? It should be of how to build a rebellion, not how to take down the Death Star. So that's right. Yeah. We, in that metaphor, we're the Death Star. But that's fine. Anyway, anyway. That's all right. So that's all right. All right. Uh, thanks for coming, everyone. Um, yes. Um, all right. Ciao for now. Thanks. See ya. Okay. So those are the hosts of Decoding the Gurus: Chris Cavanaugh, Matt Brown, a couple of center-left academics in the field of psychology. Everyone is vulnerable. So the main story right now is Buffalo Bill safety Demire Hamlin collapsed on field, had to have CPR, rushed to the hospital, is intubated, is in critical condition. Looking at uh, comments on Twitter, I hope he makes a full recovery. It's long past time to admit that American football should no longer exist as a professional sport or a high school or college sport. So increasingly middle-class parents don't let their kids play tackle football. But we're all vulnerable. We're all incredibly vulnerable. I've interviewed thousands of people. And, and the one you know, dominating impression that jumped out at me is everyone has tremendous vulnerabilities. So you're just listening to two left-wing professors talking about how afraid they are to tackle people on the left because members of their in-group, the left, know how to wound them. And how do you wound them? You go to their dean. So I have a friend who is a tenured American college professor, and his dean got complaints about my friend's tweets. And my friend, even though he had tenure, he was effectively fired. Apparently his his career in academia is over. I'm not sure if he's been out to find another job, even though it's it's years later now. So yeah, academics really don't like it when you contact their dean, all right, with complaints about their online activities. So these are two left-wing hosts talking about how afraid they are to tackle anyone on the left because the left knows how to hurt them by just going straight to their dean with allegations that they're racist and sexist. So the more prestigious your position, the more vulnerable you are to cancellation in America.
for accusations of, of racism and sexism. So if you're a plumber, if you're a secretary, right, if you've got some kind of blue collar job, you're not nearly as vulnerable. But if you're in a prestigious position, you're a Fox News commentator, or if you're, you know, an op-ed columnist, all right, then, then you're much more vulnerable. So let's get back to uh, Fox News here. Life in sports, Lawrence. All of a sudden, we saw this moment where you have a tackle made, and it's not even a particularly violent collision as NFL collisions go, as NFL tackles go. The man stands up from the tackle and then just collapses. And instantaneously, a game which had been out there to contest the overall number one seed, a top-end entertainment event, turned into a serious life event. And sports did what it often does. In that pivot, the common humanity of sports fans has come together. And I just look at this and think, how incredible is that? Over $1.2 million now, Lawrence, raised for this charity event. You can go see it uh, on my Twitter. I'm sure Fox News can put up the link to this at some point just to share what an incredible story that is as we wait to see what DeMar Hamlin's outcome is going to be here. And certainly we're praying and all wishing him the best. But the fact that nearly 48,000 people, when a tragedy befell an NFL player on the field, that their immediate action was, you got the video up, Lawrence. It's so compelling of all those fans. But remember, this is on the road. This isn't a game in Buffalo. It's Cincinnati. They're all coming together and trying to make something positive out of what is a tragedy, which to me is an innately American experience. And I think in this way, sports has transcended the competition itself and helped to embody what makes America so special. You know, Clay, you make such an interesting point. You, we, we are so inundated with negativity that I think sometimes yes. we forget. I just can't handle the Fox News host here. You can barely understand what he's, he's talking about. But main point is that we all are vulnerable. We're all vulnerable in, in different ways. And so showing some empathy for other people's vulnerability increases the odds that other people show vulnerability for you. This is Clay Travis back again. Something like 5% of the American public gets on social media and shares an opinion, right? Well, there you go. 90, 95% <laughs> of Americans did what these nearly 48,000 people did. They didn't go out, and Will said it well. I've always said the internet is basically a blame factory. Something bad happens, and there has to be someone to blame for it. Right. But innately, what most Americans do when something bad happens is we rally together. And I think social media oftentimes doesn't reflect that, which is why I think the story of a fundraiser that was hoping to raise $2,500 to be able to give gifts to kids who were underprivileged and didn't have the opportunity to experience Christmas, $1.2 million. And, and, and it's gone, this, this, uh, this fundraiser, from 2500 to over $1.2 million tonight because... When bad things happen. So I'll say as an Australian who moved to the United States that, that Americans, according to the best of my knowledge and the best of my experience, are the, the single most generous people on earth. That They you know, raise money, give money uh, more frequently than, than any other people. So a lot of functions that you know, otherwise governments do, you know, the first world countries, Americans pitch in and just socially... Uh, individually uh, collect, such as with uh, medical, unexpected medical expenses and the like. Okay, this is the left-winger 
talking to Chris Kavanaugh, centre-left of Decoding the Good at puncturing, like, left-wing pieties. Like, the, because... But the thing is, do you okay. think that he would want there to be, a like, a right-wing government off the stripe that uh, Douglas Murray or, or anybody on the farther right side of the spectrum would want? Like, would Sam want that kind of government... My, my assessment of it is that he wouldn't. I think he wouldn't like he wouldn't like the label right wing, and that is his main problem with that. He doesn't want to be associated with that. Mm. But that is not significant enough uh, difference in actually being. So you go on Twitter, and there are immediately all sorts of responses. Uh, is this you know another person who's collapsing suddenly? A lot of uh, dissent voices on, on Twitter want to, you know, link this to certain public health protocols. I, you know, have to speak in euphemisms and generalities due to the terms of service of many social media companies. But that is the dominant dissident reaction to what happened in this f- football game. That this is a reaction to certain public health measures that have become mandatory in various areas of American life. And then I'm seeing all these elites, including medical elites, pushing back and saying that's absolute nonsense. And I am not with the distance. Like I am, I am pro-conventional public health measures to stem the tide of influences such as COVID. I am pro-vaccination. I've been vaccinated for COVID uh, five times. I, I got my flu shot. I got my shingles vaccine. I'm totally down with with vaccines. I support you know vaccine protocols for children who are going to public school, but I do notice this dissident reaction all through social media. And I don't side with it. I don't believe that they're correct, but I do notice reality. And the reality is that this is a dominant reaction on, on certain dissident circles because people have you know come to realize that they've been consistently lied to. So with regard to 9-11, that was a red pilling event for many people hey, maybe we should tighten up immigration protocols. Then we had a disastrous war in Afghanistan and Iraq, disastrous wars that were premised on false conditions, that there were weapons of mass mass destruction in Iraq, or that we have to fight al-Qaeda in Afghanistan so we don't have to fight them here. Those are lies that cost us trillions, about $7 trillion, prosecuting those phony wars. Then you had the total collapse of the financial system that virtually none of our financial system elites saw coming. So we have this ever-expanding amount of information due to the internet. So the generally held esteem for our public institutions is at an all-time low because we have more questioning and more information. So it used to be the elites had much more control over the information flow. But now people realize that they've been consistently lied to about certain things. Remember, George W. Bush in the year 2000, he ran on not racially profiling airline passengers. Like, that was a significant part of his platform. You know, we should not uh, racially, ethnically profile, and some of the the airline check-in people, all right, they, they thought there's something very suspicious about these al-Qaeda terrorists, but they were afraid of being accused of racially, religiously, ethnically profiling. And so they didn't act on their instincts that these al-Qaeda terrorists were dangerous because they were so afraid of being shamed and blamed and fired for noticing. 
And so a lot of people have gotten tired of being shamed and blamed and fired for just noticing patterns in life that you're not supposed to say out loud. And so there is an enormous rebellion against elites. And I, generally speaking, I side with elites regarding the effectiveness of our public health protocols in opposing the, the spread of COVID. But I certainly have a lot of emotional sympathy and sometimes intellectual sympathy with, with dissidents who are pointing out you know, how sick and tired they are of being lied to by elites and by the mainstream media in all sorts of this, you know, all sorts of ways. And this, you know, this, this attitude of lying to people on behalf of, you know, a greater good that so many of our, you know, leading officials, uh, politicians, you know, spokesmen, media organizations participate in, right? It significantly decreases public trust, right? This is a conversation between a lefty, a woman, ex-Muslim, talking to center-left, Chris Kavanaugh, a professor and co-host of Decoding the Gurus. Right-wing and not being right-wing to me. If you, like, you, you, you recognize there's a whole new crop of right-wingers that just want to repackage themselves. Like, we were talking about how these conversations and these talking points come up again and again, and they're repackaged. Yeah as the exact same things. If you listen to old right-wing speeches about political correctness and the fear-mongering about the left, um, it's the exact same thing that they're doing now. And Sam, I think as someone of Muslim background, um, mm-hmm. the things he thinks about immigration, I think hit me in a more urgent way. No, I get that. So, yeah, yeah, I think he would want a right-wing uh, government in the sense that it would, you know, curb people like me coming. Mm. And he would say that, no, 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 I am fine with secular Muslims and all of that. And I, I've been advocating for, you know, ex-Muslims should be the first ones that we should take. But I'm sorry, you don't actually, when you're looking at all this from the top, no one is going to dig deep enough to see how deeply someone believes and how deeply someone doesn't believe. You know, mm. I can be ex-Muslim all day, but when I am traveling, I am treated like every other Muslim. Mm. You know, we have to leave earlier because we know we'll get put, pulled out for random checks and then they'll see, yeah. the, you know, that we've lived. Okay, so if she's having these negative experiences, uh, did she ever consider that perhaps it's the behavior of some members of her group that has given her group a, a bad name? All right. So the primary thing that influences how non-Jews view Jews is the behavior, the choices, and the language used by Jews. primary thing that influences how blacks are treated by non-blacks is the behavior and language used by blacks. The primary thing that affects how non-Muslims view Muslims is the behavior of Muslims. But this ex-Muslim, all her animus is towards Western civilization, which has welcomed her, which has probably massively subsidized her which you know, has probably you know, spent tens of thousands of dollars of social welfare spending on her and her family. And she has this enormous chip on her shoulder that there are some people out there who have some negative feelings about Muslims due to the behavior of a tiny proportion of Muslims. So why isn't this woman angry 
at that tiny number of Muslims who have given Muslims a bad name, right? When, when Jeffrey Epstein and Harvey Weinstein engage in horrific behavior, right? They give Jews a bad name. I'm mad at Jeffrey Epstein and Harvey Weinstein, right? I, I, that's where my animus goes towards those members of my in-group who behave badly and then give my in-group you know, a bad reputation and cause other people to want to discriminate against my in-group. But uh, this woman seems to have no self-awareness that uh, maybe her animus should primarily be directed against that tiny proportion of her in-group that has caused you know, these, these massively negative reactions. Right? One thing we know about stereotypes is that they are overwhelmingly accurate. Right? People don't form stereotypes for, for false reasons. Right? The reason we have stereotypes about this group or that group is for understandable reasons, right? We have evolved not for primarily our own happiness, but to be ever alert for threats. And so when you see members of a particular group engaging in a tremendous amount of social disruption or a tremendous amount of crime or occupying a tremendous amount of social welfare spending or, you know, hijacking airplanes, you know, flying airplanes in, into buildings, then naturally, normally... Now, other people will have a negative reaction towards other members of that group who are absolutely innocent. But the way the brain works is we don't, generally speaking, look at people as individuals. We look at people as members of a group because we don't have enough you know, brain processing power to make you know, individual decisions. We just have to say, oh, there are, there's Catholics, there are Jews, there are homosexuals, there are, there are Muslims, there are, there are Blacks, there are Japanese. That's just the the way the brain works. So her anger should primarily be directed at the bad behavior of certain members of her in-group that have then caused a bad reputation among members of the out-groups that then lead them to look uh, more skeptically at uh, members of her in-group. But she doesn't want to engage in that sort of introspection, just like those university professors, Matt Brown and Chris Kavanaugh. They're highly reluctant to take on members of the left. They're highly reluctant to say or do anything that could cause any blowback to their deans. They're highly reluctant to say or do anything that will affect their standing in the academy. Their primary peer group and their primary hero system, right, what they hold sacred is the left-wing academic outlook and fitting in with fellow members of the you know, academic profession. And they don't want what's most sacred to them, their academic careers, negatively affected by anything they say on social media. So that's that is their Ten Commandments. That's their transcendent moral system. That's their hero system, right? It's another partisan system, right? They think that uh, what they stand for is just being good and not being bad and harm reduction, but that's all based on a very particular hero system linked to the left-wing academic outlook of their peers. And what they're most concerned about is you know, negative perceptions from, from their peers. And so they're not going to rock the boat with their peers. And so too with this woman, she doesn't want to you know, rock the boat with members of her own in-group. Apparently she, you know, primarily wants to blame out groups for having, you know, any sort of reservations about her and her in-group. So very self-centered attitude. In Saudi Arabia, born in Saudi Arabia and things like that. Like, like it, traveling is a huge hassle. Yeah. She grew up in, Saudi Arabia. She spent apparently most of her early life in Saudi Arabia. 
And she resents that so many people have negative perspectives of Saudi Arabia. To the extent that people have negative views of Saudi Arabia, it's because of very concrete decisions made by Saudi Arabians. And it was Saudis who undertook the 9-11 attacks. So why isn't she angry at Saudis for their behavior? And that has caused a backlash on the, the perspectives of non-Saudis vis-a-vis Saudi Arabians, right? But she just wants to blame, you know, white people and Western civilization rather than looking at her own you know, civilization. So this is uh, Nice Mangoes is the Twitter account and the Patreon of this uh, left-wing woman talking to Chris Kavanaugh decoding the gurus. For us. And trust me, I have zero beliefs in God or Islam, and it doesn't matter, you know? My name is sure. Muslim, and my association with Saudi Arabia is very Muslim. And so, yes, I think that Sam would want... Like, he's talked about, you know, when Ted Cruz was saying that we should only take Christian migrants and have, like, religion tests... He was saying that that was perfectly fine when, yeah. you know what, like Muslim migrants fleeing from that area are in just as much trouble because they're fleeing like ISIS and to ISIS, anyone that is not practicing the way that they want is a non-believer. Yeah. That, so there's a, there's a couple of things there. Like one. So there's absolutely zero awareness here of why is it in the self-interest of another country to take in migrants from areas impacted by ISIS. Like, what's in it for America? What's in it for Australia? What's in it for England or France or Germany or Hungary or, or Poland to take in these migrants? No, it's just all about what's good for me and my in-group. There's zero consideration that she gives for members of our groups. Like, they're only human to her to the extent that they interact with her and, and just to the extent that they deal with her and her in-group. But don't other groups have interests? Is it only Muslims who have interests? Is it only Muslims who are fully human? Does, does the humanity of non-Muslims, should that only come down to how they treat Muslims? But don't people in England and France and Spain and Italy have interests? So how is it to the advantage of people in Italy or in Canada to import more Saudi Arabians. It might be, all right? Just show me the statistical evidence. I'm completely open to that. If it's in the best interests of America, of England, of Iceland, Spain, Germany, Poland, Hungary, to import more Pakistanis, more, more Syrians, more Palestinians, right? Just more people from Chad or Congo or Somalia. Just present that evidence of how that's in the best interests of a particular country, say England or France. But that doesn't even occur to her to try to make the case why it's in America's interest to import more people from Saudi Arabia. Like she apparently has has zero concern for the welfare and for the interests of groups outside of her own, which is a very typical protected minority reaction because they are so used to being regarded in elite circles as, you know, possessing a sacred status that renders them immune from criticism. Thing I would say, and I'm not using this as like a, uh, I'm not drawing a parallel to the experiences and like the the level of severity, but I will say, as a Northern Irish person with a beard, 
who like、mm-hmm. traveled, you know, during and after the troubles are、uh, mm-hmm. around. I'm very familiar with, you know, being、uh, like stopped and searched and and、mm-hmm. and、uh, like singled out by security forces. Otherwise, I'm just exceedingly unlucky. And and、uh, <laughs> the, the that kind of thing. So I and I.、Uh, okay, so it doesn't occur to Chris Cavanaugh to have any negative feelings towards, you know. Irishmen who behave badly, who have caused non-Irishmen to look a little more skeptically or fearfully at members of his group. So there's there's no concern by either of these lefties about the interests of people outside their group, right? Their, their sole concern is with their own particular hero system and non-discrimination, you know, anti-racism, you know, anti-bigotry, anti-ignorance. You just need to educate people so that they you know will stop、uh, taking a negative perspective. You know, on on their own individual and group interests. All right, back to the advisor is to be the subject of the next document dump by the social media giant. Twitter CEO Elon Musk says there's more to come in terms of exposing the inner workings of the social media giant. Musk tweeted Sunday, "Hope you're having a great day one, 2023. One thing's for sure, it won't be boring." Then Musk wrote he'll release the so-called Fauci files quote later this week. Likely to be how Twitter handled material related to Dr. Anthony Fauci at the height of the COVID pandemic. The soon-to-be Republican chairman of House Oversight says he's already learned about government censorship during COVID. We know that there were disinformation boards in all these government agencies.、Uh, it wasn't just the FBI; it was also HHS and, and DHS and the Department of Defense. And there were lots of disinformation boards trying to、uh, suppress anyone who had competing ideas. Or competing facts to Dr. Fauci. Comer's promising hearings about COVID's origins and Fauci's handling of the crisis. Fauci retired at the end of the year from serving as director of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases, but says he'll cooperate. I'd be more than happy to explain publicly or otherwise、mm-hmm. everything that we've done, and I could defend and explain everything that we've done from a public health standpoint. Before his departure, the White House offered full support for Fauci and his decades of service. These personal attacks、uh, that we have been seeing are dangerous uh, uh, on Dr. Fauci and other public health professionals as well.、Uh, are, they are disgusting and they are divorced from、uh, from reality. Already, leading Republicans are arguing Fauci had too much power, suggesting the country would have been much better served if the responsibility and authority had been divided among a few people. Up next, plenty of explosions ring in the new year in Ukraine, but they are not from celebratory fireworks. We'll bring you there live. First, here's what some of our Fox affiliates around the country are covering tonight. Fox 11 in Reno, as actor Jeremy Renner remains. Okay, we'll keep an eye on the news, trying to find out what's going on with that Buffalo Bills safety. Okay, here's a conversation between a couple of、uh, left-wing intellectuals.、Uh, I think very much that, like、uh, Muslims,、uh, the world over, took over. From you know, like the IRA as the、mm. uh, uh, like the the go-to terrorist representations. Although they were、mm. always there in movies、mm. as well, but you know that that's how Northern Irish used to be seen and, and kind of you know a lingering cultural thing. But、um, so just to say, I have like sympathy <laughs> with、mm. with with that kind of thing happening. But the on the other point about like you know the issue of immigration being very salient because of that, and that also.、Um, There are, you know, the positions that Sam has stick out on on that 
are not, you know, they're not center-left positions. I, hmm. I take that point, and I would also say that, you know, when I seen his discussion about, you know, in defense of racial profiling, which often gets mm-hmm. mentioned, um, there were two things that struck me about it. One was, like, the extent to which the expert <laughs> was telling him that his approach was wrong, right? Like, they was just saying, you know, I understand <laughs> that the intuition is it's like this, but that doesn't actually work, right? It doesn't uh, yeah. we, we have experts who have spent their careers doing this. What you're thinking about is what everyone thinks about when they hear this, and it doesn't work like that. And it mm-hmm. didn't matter, right? That, that, that argument had no impact because Sam just continued to be like, well, yeah, but, you know, we know that the white old granny is not going to blow someone up as mm. likely as somebody with brown skin. And, uh, <laughs> like... As if terrorists can't adjust, right, and recruit, like, they're according well, to what they think is being looked even, for. Even, you know, even with that, like, just the the whole skin uh, being the, the, the judgment of that, like, billions of people. And, uh, mm. yeah, yeah. So, like, I, I definitely... I definitely don't agree with that, and I, I, I and I recognize like the position of that is like right, and uh, I think your point is right about there being a new uh, a new right, and I don't just mean. Guess what? Uh, experts in uh, policing they also have careers. What do you think would happen to the career of uh, someone who makes it makes his living you know, giving? public safety analysis. What do you think would happen if he came out and said that racial profiling has, you know, an important role to play in certain instances? That he would lose his career, he would be shamed and blamed, his life would be rendered miserable. As opposed to someone in public safety coming out and saying, oh, there's absolutely no reason ever for racial or religious or ethnic uh, profiling that is absolutely useless, right? You get to retain prestige, get to retain a good income, you get to retain the approval of your social class, of your peers, of your neighbors, right? Only good things happen to you, right, if you say that uh, racial, religious, ethnic profiling is absolutely useless in, in all cases. So given those incentives, how do you think people are going to pronounce an opinion? You can never convince anyone of anything if their living depends upon not understanding what you're saying. Right. So just because some public expert comes out and says something, right, that doesn't mean that they're right. Okay, what's going on in Australia? Breaking news on the Buffalo Bills' safety, who was hospitalized in critical condition. Meanwhile, back to the conversation between a lefty and a center lefty. This, in terms of like you know the extreme 
far right, which which exists, mm-hmm. like that becoming more moderate. I mean, a kind of more moderate right wing mm-hmm. that is like primarily focused on wokeism, and you might put people like Barry Weiss. Um, mm-hmm. And Brian Greenwald and so on, right? As as in there, um, I'll put moderate in quotes, but yeah, yeah. I know, I I, I I agree. Like you know, co- moderate co- appearing. Yeah, um, but but so in in that case, I'm <laughs> I'm thinking about like where do it it. It, my assessment of Sam, like, is I basically don't deny any of those points, like placing him farther on the right, and that like he doesn't acknowledge the extent to which a bunch of those positions are tied into you know right wing positions and right wing politics, and I think he shares a lot of political views with with Douglas Murray, right? Like, mm-hmm. uh, frankly, but I I kind of think when it comes to uh, the like this, this is probably about, and I, I, what you said about, you know, the salience of the immigration issue to you and, and like, I think to other people as well and, and how that is, you know, th- that's a thing which has, Sam has spent a significant amount of time on. So it would be fair to weigh that more heavily than say his stance on social welfare systems right or the... no but i can talk about that too this if you want to just talk about our discussion yeah. a bit rather than talk about everything so this... that he's right wing on yeah true, true so like i would i would say that uh my my perception is that he would be in favor of social welfare systems in general of like public health systems hmm. being introduced in the u.s about uh taxes like increasing taxes for the mm. wealthy and some potential redistribution of of like uh extreme inequality of you mm-hmm. know income in the US and and also that the uh I like in favor of reforms against gerrymandering in the UK in favor of yeah, let's uh Provided NASAM's air defense system for destroying Russian drones, coming in waves of 40 or more each night of the new year. They are afraid. You can feel it. And they are right to be afraid because they are losing. Drones, missiles, anything else will not help them. A missile strike on New Year's Eve killed at least two women, including this man's wife. I saw people being taken off on stretchers all covered in blood. There is a woman who died there. It's just shocking for me. I never thought that a rocket could come here because we don't have anything here. Nowhere is safe, not even hotels. Ukrainians are once again putting their lives back together as President Vladimir Putin blames Ukraine's allies. The West lied about peace, but was preparing for aggression, and today it admits it openly, no longer embarrassed. And they cynically use Ukraine and its people to weaken and split Russia. Tonight is the first night of the new year where so far Kiev has not been targeted with Iranian-made Shahid drones. But President Zelensky expects more to come, telling the people of Ukraine to brace for some tough times ahead in what he calls a prolonged attack. Mike? Nate Foy live in Kiev tonight. Nate, thanks a lot.
The body of Pope Emeritus Benedict is lying in state tonight in St. Peter's Square. Okay, we'll play a little bit more of this uh, lefty conversation here. Uh, like renewables and dealing with climate change. Um, so so in those kind of areas, right, like the, the kind of left-wing... And how much time do you think he spends on those things? And passion? Yeah, a lot, a lot less... But he, I, I will say that, like, he seems to have been a little bit chastened by what has happened with COVID and Majid and Brett and so on. That I've, hmm. uh, apart from his monologue content, that he does seem to be spending more time talking with tech bros or philanthropists or, you know, not so many culture war figures in recent months which you know you can't predict a trend from that small of a time frame but i uh especially with the joe rogan praise but yeah I, that's what i was gonna say <laughs> that's a that's a good counterpoint to that but um i so and also mm. if you've listened to some of his conversations with the tech bros like i'm sorry i am like an extreme harassologist so i have listened to so much that yeah. uh, uh you're gonna be annoyed that i have an, a response to everything but um yeah some of them are highly anti-woke and a lot of that conversation has focused on comparing like wokeness to you know struggle sessions or I, I mean i can't remember exact words but like just ridiculous you know ridiculous shit like absolutely right-wing conversations about how the left has gotten out of hand about how racism is barely to be found and uh in terms of the wealth inequality stuff there is this shady creepy kind of movement that he's into like the um What's it called? Uh, the effective altruism. Effective altruism, yeah. Yeah, and that, I don't fully trust it because, again, that seems to be like a tech bro-related thing where they decide which causes are worthy and which are not, and a lot of it focused on not demonizing wealth and, you know, not being mad at uh Mark Zuckerberg or whatever for being so wealthy and hmm. um, this isn't particularly left wing you know there's a lot of criticisms of the effective altruist altruism movement I just I don't you know there's a lot of people that are on the right that also dabble in these types of views you know even with Ruben people used to say that oh he accepts gay marriage obviously that was something he used to throw out a lot and uh abortion and you know you can always pick out little things here and there from even you know Richard Spencer wants health care for all sure so I just don't think that that is enough. Yeah. Especially when you're having all your anti-left conversations within that. Yes. Though, like, so I would say that, you know, I know there's criticisms of effective altruism and there are certain people like Peter Thiel and whatnot that have, you know, expressed an interest in it as well. Mm. But I, I also... Uh, I've listened to the criticisms. I think there's validity to a lot of the stuff that's raised. 
but it it is also the case that you know the uh, those movements have ended up you know donating huge amounts for like projects in the same way Bill Gates has with the Gates Foundation that have that, like I can't regard them as the doing nothing of value when they no 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 that's not what I'm saying I'm just saying would you think that that would make Peter Thiel not right wing no it, it it wouldn't so I but I I think that like the difference between say like a Peter Thiel and a Sam Harris is like Thiel has expressed concerns about letting women vote and seems to be in favor of funding people that want, you know, to create ethno states. And, uh, and was okay. It- okay. Sam doesn't do ethno states, but you know, <laughs> so Peter Thiel is, uh, funding people in favor of ethno states. Uh, what's the, what's the evidence for that? I haven't heard that. Oh, yeah, he does that's... great replacement and skull shapes. It is, it is a, a low bar to come over. So I, I, <laughs> So looking at uh, skull shapes is just ipso facto heinous. Like, why why should we not investigate, say, if there are particular skull shapes or particular facial disfigurations that are associated with, say, higher rates of committing crime? Like, that is, there's no funding for that, right? Looking at the genetic basis for crime, you just can't get any funding for that. About 98% of criminologists are on the left. So all sorts of areas of truth you can't investigate, right? You can't even look at, right? You can't get any funding to do any studies and all sorts of information is being held, you know, away from researchers if it's uh, considered that they might engage in in crime think, if they might have uh, dangerous thoughts, all right? So, you know, information about uh, genetics, all right, is, is being withheld, from from the wider public in case it gets misused. So plenty of people on the left, virtually everyone on the left, is simply not willing to consider the possibility that virtually all human traits have substantial genetic, you know, origins, right? Culture affects us, you know, our early childhood imprinting affects us, but uh, any genetic trait from uh, our political orientation to... Our, our personality to many of our other preferences and abilities, they are heavily genetic. When you know someone has musically gifted parents, all right, musically gifted parents tend to have musically gifted children. Highly intelligent parents tend to have highly intelligent children. Athletically gifted parents tend to have athletically gifted children. Socially smooth parents tend to have socially smooth children. Right, outgoing, pleasant people tend to have outgoing, pleasant children. So yeah, virtually all traits have a substantial genetic component, but the left wants to deny that and to essentially prohibit the investigation of it. I agree, but like I, I that's what I, I mean in terms of like I, I think that uh, there are people who would draw, you know, a one-to-one comparison between someone like Teal and someone like Sam and I I think that muddies the water because they're they're not similar and so would your Hmm. position then be Ina that like just I'm trying to calibrate this in my head that like basically Sam is like maybe on average 
like uh, or, or a baseline, a kind of neocon right winger, and then he has uh, a bunch of views which he spends a lot of time on, which tend towards the far right. Yeah, I can accept that. Yeah, I can. I can see how that, and especially with the political spectrum such as it is, you know, if if you have from mm-hmm. where do you put Sam Harris, and if if Ezra Klein is a you know a moderate liberal is sam beside editor okay i think i'm going to uh leave it there for now talk to you later